Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 829 with Andy Forsheimer. You know, let's say you're in a successful partnership, but it's been a while, and you come to the day where one person is in it to make more money and the other person has enough money and is in it for, you know, to, to do something beautiful, you should dissolve that partnership. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Restaurant owners know it can be almost impossible to keep everything up to date, even making adjustments on your menu. And I know it's probably one of the most important marketing tools out there, if not the most important marketing tool. That's why I'm so happy to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu seriously is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners. When you invest in Pop Menu, you get a dynamic interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start. And let me tell you, they really do love that review feature. You get a mobile-friendly website, and I cannot stress to you enough how many people miss the importance of a solid website. And you also get marketing and integrations to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. What are you waiting for? As you can see, Pop Menu gives restaurateurs all the tools they need to put the focus back on what matters the most, the people, and the food. Trust me, if you are a restaurant owner, you need to check out Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, my listeners get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging lifetime rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Now, I know you know about Plate IQ, but do you know about Plate IQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Plate IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued easily. And I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save 25% off implementation. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. 
What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder, this podcast needs your support. There's a few ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everybody and anybody you know, and you can join the network. And I want to put a little extra emphasis uh, on a win that I recently had. I had a personal win and I wanted to share with you guys. I was able to pay off my car. Uh, Not a really huge deal, but it it kind of is a big deal for me because I owed $14,000 plus on my car. And that's not the, the value of my car. That's what I owed on my car when I paid it off. And it's actually because of the profit first money management system that I was able to pay off my car. So you guys have heard me talking about profit first in the past. Uh, you've heard me, you've heard me preach about how impactful it can be on your life and your business. And now, you know, I got to witness other people have success with it, but now I'm starting to have success with it. And if you are interested in this system, we do have a course. I collaborated on a course with Casey Anton going back almost two years ago. Uh, and I've since implemented this in my own life. And I'm telling you, this is one of the things that I stand by and I'm having success with it. So if you're interested, if you're curious about how I paid off my car using the profit first money management system, then feel free to reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com and come join the profit first course within the network. It's only $250 and that is such a small amount of money when you can think about how much money you'll save in just the, having the peace of mind over being able to know where your money is all the time. I paid off my car $14,000 in one year because of using the system. So it's powerful stuff. It works. Uh, again, email me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com if you're interested in how I did this or join the network and purchase the course. Uh, and you're supporting the podcasts when you make these purchases. So thank you in advance. So today we're talking to Andy Forstheimer and Andy, man, what an incredible journey this guy's had. His life is just so inspiring. Uh, A graduate of Harvard university uh, from like the early eighties into the the nineties, this guy was just traveling all over the country and it comes out in his story. He would just show up at these restaurants and say, I want to work here. And I don't think we do this enough anymore. Just showing up and and being on the, the doorsteps, creating opportunity for yourself, just taking a leap. He did that in his early life. Uh, and then he decided he wanted to take a break from leading kitchens and being an executive chef. And he went to work for Martha Stewart. He did that for about a year before the kitchens called him back and he partnered, uh, to open the Barcelona wine bar. They scaled that to multiple locations. Then he opened bar taco and again, scaled to multiple locations. They ended up combining these two look, these two concepts into the bar Barteca restaurant group. And they sold to Del Frisco for $325 million. And now today, Andy is the co-chief executive officer for Tastemakers Acquisition Group. He sits on multiple boards like uh, US Foods, Upward Projects Restaurant Group, and Hickory Tavern. He's also the lead director for Wisely Inc. Just tons of stuff going on with this guy. A really great story. This is one you're going to want to listen through all the way to the end. And also, if you do enjoy today's episode and you want to connect with Andy directly, be sure you stick around to the end. I'll teach you how you can do that. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest co-founder of of Bar Taco in Barcelona Wine Bar and CEO of Tastemaker Acquisition Group. 
And I should mention, you also hold, you also hold titles with Wisely, U.S. Foods, and Upwards Project Restaurant Group, Andy Forsheimer. Andy, are you feeling unstoppable today? Well, you know, it's Friday, so <laughs> less unstoppable than Monday, but but yeah, I feel pretty good. Yeah, I am super excited for today's conversation. Special thanks to Kyle and Sarah for putting you on my radar. Uh, I cannot wait to dive into your story. You have what seems to be a really interesting one, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Oh, wow. Uh, God, I got a bunch. All right. You know what I like? I like... What you tolerate becomes your standard. What you tolerate becomes your standard. What Dissect you that. Means if, you're, if you look at a dish going out and you go, eh, I guess that's okay, then that's your standard yeah. right there. Why are standards so important? Oh, that's standards of everything. Yeah. Um, we had a, uh, uh, I had a chef years and years ago, and he came from another restaurant group, and we were arguing about something, and he said, you know, my old, at my old restaurant, we had a saying in an argument, the highest standard wins. And we all looked at each other and went, oh, that is a really, really good... That's a good that standard a in itself. Good, <laughs> that is a, just a good axiom to live by. Yeah. And it comes, you know, it comes into all the time. That, that's all a restaurant is, right? I mean, it's just a, a zillion less than perfect things going on. And it's up to you to say, oh, you know, yeah, he's not the world's greatest waiter, but he's been here for a while and you know, I'm not going to fire him. Or, you know, ah, you know that, that looks a little overcooked, but... I got six other things on that table, and if I push that one back, then it's going to mess the whole table up. Or, you know, well, she's not that bright, but, you know, she's cheerful, and so having her at the front door doesn't hurt that much. I mean, that's all it is. It's, it's yeah. just one after another, and, you know, really successful, eh, really successful, really great restaurateurs are the ones who say, you know what, I can't serve that. Or, mm. you know what, uh, you know, he's been with me for years, but he's getting kind of surly at the bar and it might be time to move on. And that's just sort of, you know, the standards, if you let them move because you're tired or it's a pain in the ass or, or, or any number of, of things, then before you know it, yeah, you know, I think that's a great way to get this thing started. And before I start every interview, I usually tell my guests, like I told you that restaurant unstoppable isn't about the restaurant so much as it's about the people behind the restaurant. And you are only as good as your standards and your restaurant is only as good as you. Right. Yeah, so that's right. great way to get this thing started. I love it. And man, you have a really interesting path to where you got to today because you didn't know you went to Harvard University. So early on, you you didn't, or, but you also took time away from Harvard to go study abroad and cook, right? So you must have known somewhere early that this is your path, but you still wanted to go to Harvard. Like, what was going on through your mind? Like, yeah, I did. I didn't study abroad. Um, I, I started cooking when I was in high school because I was on the wrestling team, and okay. and you know, every week I had to lose weight, and so I would, you know, I'd have to eat tiny amounts of tuna or something like that. And I would come home and I would tell my mom, I can't eat that. I want this. And she would say, great, make your own food. <laughs> and so, you know, I started making my own food. Uh, I enjoyed it. I got to Harvard just on a, you know, as that was college, that's where I was going. That's what I was doing next. Um, and I, I didn't love being in school, uh, and, and school didn't love me back. And, uh, you know, I, I joined a, uh, club basically is a magazine and and one of their traditions was thursday night dinners okay. for everybody black tie dinners and and i volunteered to cook the dinners and i i used to spend 13 days out of two weeks planning and then making these huge dinners and and you know getting 
mediocre grades in my classes, but just getting more and more into the dinners. And at some point, um, I went, uh, where was I? I was in New Orleans with a friend, and we went to some French restaurant. I loved going out. I loved, I loved trying food. I loved, you know, any kind of street food, whatever. And I was talking to the chef, and he said, well, you should go to France and cook. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? This is 1980. No internet. No, you know. And he said, well, I'll give you the name of, like, the greatest chef in Burgundy, and you should go work for him. And I said, okay. Sounds good. And I got back home, and I thought, you know what? Maybe, you know, what the hell? Why not? So I wrote the guy a letter. I want to come work for you. Never heard back from him. Um, at the end of my sophomore year, after getting uh, like an F in art history or something like that, I thought, you know what? I don't want to be doing this anymore. I want to cook. Uh, so I packed all my stuff, and I, I got on a bicycle in Brussels and biked down to Burgundy and showed up at this restaurant. And, of course, it was closed because it was uh, August. And I... I they opened the next day, so I went into town and I dropped all my stuff off at some, I think it was like $15 a night hostel, and I went back the next day and I said, and the chef was there, they were reopening the restaurant, and I said, hi, I'm the one who wrote you that letter, and he said, what letter, or which one? Yeah, no, he said, he said, yeah, I got the letter, but I can't, yeah, <laughs> no, I can't, you can't work here, There's, you don't have working papers in Europe, and, and I don't need anybody, and and I lied and I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm here with just my bicycle and I have no way of getting home. I used all my money to get here and, I, I, you know, I'll have to write home. And, and he was a nice guy and he said, all right, you know, you can sleep downstairs in the, the pigsty with the other 14-year-old uh, apprentices. Um, so How old were you at this time? Like eight, I was 20, 19. 19? 19, okay. 19, yeah, yeah. And so I said, okay, great. And, you know, can I peel onions or something in the meantime? And he's basically said, you know, no, you need skill to peel onions. I wouldn't let you peel my onions. Um, but, you know, I hung around. Like, I kept telling him that, you know, I'd written to my parents, but it, 1980, it would take a while. I'd have to get, you know, money back. And, yeah. Anyway, so, so I stayed there about two weeks. And, then, and what happened in those two weeks is the chef had a daughter, and she was a couple years younger than me. And he had trained in Australia. His English was very good. Okay. And she really wanted to speak English. And... While I was working my way up to peeling onions, I was also teaching her English. Okay. Um, Fair trade. Yeah. And at the end of two weeks, he was pretty excited that her English had gotten better. And he said, okay, you can stay till the end of the summer. I nice. finally said, uh, I finally ran out of time. And I said, yeah, my parents said, you know, they'll send me money. I can go home. Uh, but can I stay? And he said, yeah, if you keep teaching her English. And by the end of the summer, I had graduated to peeling onions and then, you know, plucking herbs. And then I was allowed to you know, hose down the fish walk and all, all the, the classic apprentice stuff. I ended up staying for about a year and a half. Uh, I, I worked my way up to be the apprentice to the chef Poissonnier, the guy who cooked all the, uh, the fish dishes. Okay. And one day he went to Australia, left a note behind. I'm not coming back. And in this big kitchen of 20-something people uh, with all the apprentices and people who had been there for years – not a single person knew how to do any of the fish dishes. <laughs> I was the only one because I, you know, I like fish and I was watching him and everybody else wanted to be the meat guy. And he, you know, it was, it was, it was a catastrophic blow to the kitchen to have an American like actually put their hands on one of the, oh, man. the dishes. Yeah. Cause then I was 19, but I knew how to make them. So yeah. anyway, so, so I, I stayed till the end of the following summer and, and, uh, you know, learn how to cook. And then so I, up to this point, I think uh -huh. it's really important for me to point out uh, one of the key 
characteristics of successful people and, and, and especially in the restaurant industries mm-hmm. is just to go out there and take a risk and just go. Oh, every, just every go, every, right. Just every start, job, right. Every Whatever it is, just go. And you'll be, if, if you, if you have the right intentions, if, if yeah. the, the passion is there, the desire is there, if you just go, the universe has a way of kind of just being like, okay, we'll figure it out. Well, that's, right? that's the Woody Allen quote, right? Yeah. Uh, half of, half of success is showing up. Yeah. Um, and, and it builds on itself, right? So I got back to, I got back to Harvard cause I'd promised my dad that I would finish school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got back and there was a, I looked around and, and the restaurant that was the most interesting was a, uh, a really, really fascinating Northern Italian restaurant again, 1982 or whatever this was. It was not, you know, yeah. there wasn't much real, experiment real quick, going I'm on. I'm curious, what were you studying at Harvard? I'm curious if that had any. Influences. I was a philosophy major. Okay. And when I came back, I actually switched over to, to Russian language and literature, which, which was something I always loved and thought, well, I can't actually major in that. But, you know, going away and doing this, I came back with kind of an attitude of, yeah, I can, I, I can do whatever I want. Mm. And so, so I switched majors and ended up being fluent in Russian. But, um, so anyway, that didn't really serve you that much in your, your career as a restaurateur. Do you think it The has? Russian? Yeah, did it? Not at all. No. Okay. No. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the philosophy did. Um, I, I was curious about that. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, yeah. When, as, you, as you translate from making dishes to, to managing a company with 3,000 people, philosophy is... Maybe we can lot, shelf yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, so... Um, yeah, so, so I, I looked around. I found this really cool restaurant. I walked in. I said, hey, I just got back from a year-and-a-half apprenticeship in France. And they said, when can you start? Um, and, you know, I, I was going to class, so I worked just Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, that's it. Um, but it was a great restaurant. And it was just the opposite of France. The, everyone who ran it was a hippie. And, and you know, the Cambridge and Somerville back in, in the early 80s was full of grown hippies starting businesses and, and, you know, but they made everything themselves. They pickled everything. They had, uh, uh, you know, very, it was a, it was a very loose ethos, but, but anything went and the food was great. Uh, so I did that for two years. Okay. And then I graduated and I thought, okay, this, this bug hasn't gone away. So I want to cook. So back in 1984, 1984, um, there were no lists of anything. Nobody knew. I mean, you knew the restaurants in your city. That's it. Yeah. There was no way to know what was going on anywhere else in the mm-hmm. country, except for one thing. And that was John Mariani used to write every year. He would do his top 25 restaurants in the country, uh, list for Playboy. Okay. He wrote for Playboy and so I took the top 25 list and I circled the top five and I got one of those Amtrak $99 go anywhere in the country tickets. Okay. Uh, and I, and I, I worked in a couple rafting trips and visiting people. I'm just so jealous that you can go anywhere in the country for night. As know, somebody who travels day, a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I went around the world with my wife you used to be able to buy for, for like $999 you could buy around the world ticket and you just had to keep going one direction. And yeah. You, you could, I think that's something that needs to change. Oh, I think awesome. like awesome. transportation needs to be more accessible yeah. for more. I think it would help the hospitality yeah. industry a lot, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but sorry, keep going. Well, anyway, so, so two of the restaurants were in New York. So I walked into them both and said, Hey, I want to work here. And they said, ha, <laughs> basically they said you're not French and even though you're trained in France you're not French yeah. so they, they laughed at me um, and one, you know, one was Lutes and I can't remember the other. I think the other was La Cote Basque and then one of the restaurants was in Chicago and I got as far as Wheeling it was in Wheeling, Illinois I got as far as Wheeling, Illinois I looked around I went no and I went, got back on the train and then the other two were in California one was in LA in a restaurant called Les Anges uh, 
on the beach in Santa Monica. And he offered me a job on the spot. And then the last one was in San Francisco, a uh, restaurant called um, the uh, uh, Santa Fe Bar and Grill with Jeremiah Tower was the mm-hmm. chef. And uh, so I went to Santa Fe Bar and Grill and they said, oh, Jeremiah's not here. He's at the new restaurant. And that wasn't in the Playboy article. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, where's the new restaurant? They, they sent me to the new restaurant. Uh, Stars. Stars, right? that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, I got there and they said, oh, Jeremiah's in uh, Berkeley at the Santa Fe Bar and Grill, which I found out is just how they got rid of people who were looking for Jeremiah. Um, but to your point, I'm, I'm not good at taking no for an answer. And I, so I, I had a resume all typed up and I gave it to the whoever was telling me that to go away and said, well, can you give this when he comes back? Can you give this to him? And they disappear. And, and about two minutes later, out comes the guy who's not Jeremiah, who, who turns out to be uh, Mark Franz, who's the chef de cuisine. And he looks at me kind of funny. He says, do you go to Harvard? I said, yeah. He goes, do you work in France? I said, yeah. He goes, do you work at upstairs at the pudding for two years? I was like, yeah. He goes, huh. All right, hold on. He disappears. Five minutes later, Jeremiah comes out, <laughs> asks the same questions, kind of looks at me strangely and says well can you can you start thursday it was it was a tuesday and i said of course i can start thursday and i thanked him and i i went straight to the airport (laughs) and got a uh again on people express it was like 49 nine dollar ticket back to new york threw my stuff in a bag you know came back out nowhere to live no anything just but it worked out, right? Oh, yeah, it worked out. I slept on, I had my, my mother's cousin lived in San Francisco, and I slept on their floor for a little while till I found a place to, to sleep. And, um, yeah, I started at Stars about a month after they opened. Again, um, but just, I think I need yeah. to make an example of you of just going, right? Like, just getting yeah. in front of these people. Like, and that's just, what you're doing back in the 80s is what I started to do four years ago when I was trying to get in front of really great restaurateurs. I was like, I'm just going to get in my car and show up because people in this industry are hardwired to show up for the person that shows up for them. Yeah. Right? Like, you show up, you, you're on my front door, like, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to show you hospitality or, oh, yeah. or whatever. And, and, I can't tell you how many times, I'm sure this is true of you too, and I, I want to go out to a restaurant and I. I want to go with friends and they call and say, oh yeah, I called the restaurant. They've got nothing, you know, they got no tables available for six weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you, all right, you go down to the restaurant, <laughs> show up and say, hey, there's four of us and you know, we'll be out of here by 830. Can, can we get a table? And they say, yeah, yeah sure. Do. Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of empty tables. Sure. Help yourself. So what were your, if you could like distill the biggest lesson up to this point mm-hmm. of your, of your career before really diving in as a career cook, what, what's the biggest lesson? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think we, I, I highlighted the idea of just starting and, and showing up. Well, that's, right? that's part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, if, you could, if you're extending this question through my time at Stars, because I learned a lot at Stars, right? Um, I learned a lot of lessons at Stars. So one of, there are a few that I learned there. Um, I think the biggest one was I was, you know, everyone at Stars was encouraged to, to uh, come up with dishes for specials, right? Because it, the, the menu changed every day. And I had something I'd been workshopping and I was pretty proud of it and, and I thought it would be a good. And there were a couple of things that weren't exactly right, but it was, you know, it was, it yeah. was close. You could, you could get the idea. And, and so, um, you know, I said to Jeremiah, I've been working on this thing. Can you come try it? And he said, sure. So I made it. I gave it to him. And I said, yeah, and, you know, this over here, this would actually be so-and-so, and I'm still working on this. And he, like, he looked at me funny, and he, like, pushes the plate back to me and says, when it's right, I'll look at it. 
And I was like, okay. Right. So you told him that it wasn't it, in your it, mind it, ready. Yeah. And okay. he was, it's like he's, Jeremiah is very black and white. Things are right or they're not right. Mm-hmm. And that, again, it, it, it may seem obvious, but it's, it's shocking how few people in the industry think that way. I mean, it's just, you know, everything's on a sliding it's scale. It's a standard, right? Back it's or, it's or a the, standard. What was the, standard. what we were talking about when we started the episode, like whatever your yeah. standard is, what was the quote? What you, what you accept becomes your standard. So how does that tie into what's happening here in this moment? Uh, right now talking to you? No, in this moment, <laughs> in, in your story with Jeremiah. Oh, um, <laughs> well, he was just saying, this is not good enough. Like, yeah. why would you, why do you want me to eat something that's not right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, you know, what's the point? So get, I, get to the point where you are ready, you know, yeah. like workshop it, get to the point yeah. where you are ready, where you think I'll you have a comment on this when it's, don't when waste it's my right. time helping Don't waste you my get time. There. Yeah. 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 I get um, that. And that was a great one. Uh, one of the other great lessons I learned from Jeremiah uh, was we all sort of, you know, as we got more senior, we rotated into these, these um, roles of, uh, um, you know, su- management or. Yeah, I mean, not quite. You'd become like a sous chef for the day okay. or, or something crazy like that. And um, one day I was the sous chef for the day, and it was I, I was actually in charge of putting sort of the menu together. Um, and I was very junior, and, and this was a big deal. And, and uh, I was trying to, you know, put my thoughts in order, and I couldn't find, you know, what I was, <laughs> I, I just couldn't get it together. And I, I ended up taking a, a pad and a pencil and, and going in a closet and closing the door just because it was quiet. Yeah. It? And for some reason, Jeremiah came along, he opened the closet door and I'm in there with a pencil and piece of paper. And he goes, what are you doing in there? <laughs> and I said, I'm just trying to think. And he said, good, that's what I pay you for. And closed the closet door. <laughs> and I was always, you know, at the time it didn't register as much to me, but, but you know, many years later, dealing with chefs and regional directors and COOs and things like that. And I would say to them, you know, calm down, like, stop. You're giving me bad decisions. Like go home, you know, go to a coffee shop, go, go, go in the corner. Just like, just be, be calm, be, be still, calm, be, be still. Yeah. Like, you're, you're, you're supposed to be thinking, not acting right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, which, which I was again. So he reinforced that behavior yeah. for you, the yeah. idea of just being still thinking, yeah. Yeah. being intentional, right? Yeah. Uh, you also had time to work with Ann Rosen, Ann Rosenswag, Rosen. uh-huh. uh, and Patrick Healy. Are there any other, were those key mentors reflecting back? Ann or? was, yeah, for Ann sure. Was? I mean, okay. Pat was, Pat was a great chef. He was a French chef and he kind of, you know, I, I came to him thinking I knew what I was doing cause I worked a year and a half in France, but I, I really wasn't at the level that, that I needed to be for Pat. He beat the hell out of me. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, his, his dishes, everyone is different way of cooking. I mean, Burgundy food is very, it's not rustic per se, but it's, it's, you know, you put enough on the plate and it, it looks right. And Pat's were little jewel box plates and that was a whole different, uh, got uh, it. Yeah. So that was actually, that was a great education in, you know, in plating, right? I mean, there's, there's plating, like I say, a, a, a good chicken parm looks good, <laughs> but then there's delicate plating. And I ended up uh, doing catering and weddings over the years. And it was very, it was great to know how to, uh, you know, think about color, think about, you know, use this half of the plate and not this half. So that, that I learned from Pat. Uh, so wh- why, what's the reason for those like little tricks, like half the plate and not the other half? Um, you know, just today it's the camera eats first, right? But back then it was you eat with your eyes and, and, and there's a certain, it was just a different price point. It was in Beverly Hills. It was yeah. expensive and, and it wasn't enough to just, you know, tuck into a nice stew. It, it had to look the part. Got um, it. And, but Anne was a whole nother level. Anne was, Anne was, 
and was the the business package. I mean, she was a great chef. Yes. Uh, she was tough. You know, that didn't the standards didn't change with Anne. Um, I was very lucky to work over the course of my life with, you know, with Jeremiah, with Anne, with with Martha Stewart. Um, you know, people for whom there's right and there's everything else. And that's a it's a difficult way to go through life. I'm not necessarily saying that. Um, you know, I would want to have that uh, in my every waking thought the way Martha does. But what were the biggest lessons Anne taught you? Know, when when yeah. did this come in your journey? Like how far along are you? You were with Jeremiah for a while. Was Anne right after Jeremiah? Anne was right after. Was uh, no, I, I no, I, I worked in L.A. with Patrick, and and I was actually the uh, I was actually the head R and D chef for the Hard Rock Cafe for okay uh, for a brief period, which was a lot of fun because I was single and 26 and I got to part of my job was to walk out into the hard rock cafe and find a table of, you know, six young women and go over and say, hi, I'm the uh, R and D chef for hard rock cafe and we're workshop in this. I'm wondering what you think. And that was great. You know, I bet a little white jacket. Yeah, no, it was <laughs> terrific. Uh, and it was funny. Um, Peter Morton who ran the hard rock cafes who owned him, um, and Jeremiah had both said separately that the only great restaurant in New York was was this place called Arcadia. Like okay. they didn't like French food. This is the place to go. And they had said it separately on, you know, six months apart. And so uh, I actually had a girlfriend who moved back to New York, and I decided to move back as well. And when I got there, same thing. I was like, okay, I want to go work at this place. Because Jeremiah and Peter both said it's the best place in New York. Walked in. We're not hiring. Had a conversation, you know, had a conversation, gave him a resume. Uh, the guy who I was talking to who turned out to be Ann's partner, looked at it and said, oh, shit, the last thing we need is another Ivy League chef here. Um, and he <laughs> went and got Ann. Um, and she came out and she just busted me. She made me go in the kitchen and cook a bunch of stuff. And This is when you just showed up. This is when I just showed up. Wow. And she, you know, but that's, again, it's the restaurant industry. You're yeah. always looking for, you're yeah. always looking for people. Yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest lessons I learned. You're always hiring, like always hire hiring. slow, fire fast, but also just always be open, receptive. Yeah. If there's somebody who comes exactly. across your table exactly. and they're amazing, make room for them. Exactly you know? right. Exactly right. That that's it. And I and that's something I tell people all the time. It's like you know, just just go in, just go in, be your best self. Even if even if right now they say, I you know I have nowhere to put you. You're fantastic, but I have nowhere to put you. A week from now, someone's going to quit because yep. <laughs> that's just how it works. You're going to have and, the stable already. Exactly. And yeah. they're going to think, wow, where is that guy who came in the other day? You know, just, just. And also that mentality doesn't just stop with onboarding people. It's also with building the next restaurant. Who's sure. at your restaurant right now? Who's in the stable that's going to help well, you? This is 1984. Restaurant. People didn't build next restaurants. They had one at a time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, is, that that's, was, right. that's a, that's a recent phenomenon. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, what were the biggest lessons that Anne taught you about business? Anne taught me that prime cost matters. Mm. She watched her cost of goods. She knew it down to the, you know, the, the, the basis point and she knew exactly how much her labor was and she sent people home when they ran out of things to do and she just ran a tight ship. She was very profitable. I feel like this wasn't a common thing to do was back not, in the 80s. It was not. I, she was now a it's, smart, yeah. smart woman and a great business person and she made great food but she was very aware of, of exactly how much it cost and, and you know, you spilled something out of the walk-in and she was pissed. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and um, 
I've not, seen somebody spill a 50 gallon <laughs> container of tomato sauce. It was yeah. like a, a pasta sauce. And I, I've never seen a restaurant owner so pissed. I yeah. mean, that's a lot of money. I mean, well, typically you had chefs and you had owners yeah. and the owners got annoyed when somebody, you know, got a fork dirty and yeah. the chefs didn't, but Anne was both and, and, and she got annoyed. Um, and the other thing that Anne did, and these, again, these, this was just her, this was not industry practice. She had a reservation sheet that was a sliding scale. So there was a, they had two tops from, you know, six to seven forty five and then another one from six thirty to, you know, eight fifteen and, and it was this this kind of odd diagram of, of moving parts okay. as opposed to just, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. Yeah. Uh, she had mapped out in the dining room if we take people exactly here and exactly here, we will will always be full and, and the kitchen isn't gonna get slammed. This was way before there was an open table or anything uh, you know, remotely automated. This yeah. was just she had figured out how to uh, maximize the seating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The so, real estate, right? Yeah. And she was just, she was just a, yeah, she was really smart at that. And, uh, and I loved watching her do that part. Right. I mean, I, I loved, I loved cooking. I was still a cook, but, but, um, I took a step back. I had been running kitchens in LA at that point. Um, but I was a line cook in, uh, Arcadia because I wasn't good enough to be born in line <laughs> cook in Arcadia. She was very, very demanding. So um, what were the biggest lessons you think she taught you? Like, how did you transform as a professional under her watch? I, I, I realized that there's a business to running a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. At this point, what was your mentality before this point? Um, you know, you make great food and you put it out and somewhere someone is trying to, you know, keep track of it and make sure that it makes money, but not. Your focus was on the food, not on the, yeah, the business of food. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so prime cost, uh, maximizing your seating, getting the most out of yeah. every you know seat, the, every uh, service. What else? Oh, my God. No, she had her own private label uh, wines yeah. uh, that were made for her, which were not because she had a huge ego. It was because she could find a wine for a reasonable price and put an Arcadia label on it. And yeah. Sell because there's, there's no comparable in a store. So, mm-hmm. no, she she... Smart lady. Yeah. So a lot of, and and oddly enough, things that most people now, uh, you know, 25 year olds opening a restaurant on their way to, who want to open 20 of them have, have, have resources to know how to do this stuff, but it was less common. So at at this point, where are you mentally in your head? Like, where are you committed to yourself? Are you saying I'm committed to this industry? I want to be an executive chef. I want to open a restaurant. Like what's your personal goal at this point? So at the time, let's see, I was probably, let's say I was there as 25, 26 years old uh, at Arcadia. And I had a little plan. I was going to be a line cook until I was 20. I was a line cook till I was 25. And then I was going to be a sous chef till I was 27. And then I was going to be a chef from 27 to 30. And then when I was 30, I was going to open my own restaurant. Okay. That was my plan. Um, You didn't open a restaurant until 1996. Well, I got pretty close actually. (laughs) I was a chef and I, and and I actually would say, okay, I'm, I'm X years old and uh, you know, time to be a chef. And I would, Quit but, my job and and go get the next job. So I, I did pretty well. Yeah, on that. that is good. I mean, but there's another lesson here. I don't think most people have timelines. They don't give themselves timelines and goals like that. They don't say, by this time I'm going to be doing this. By this time I'm going to be doing this. So they just kind of react to life and react to opportunities. But you got to, if you set goals, you start forcing the opportunities. Right, right. right? And you never match exactly. Yeah, yeah what's, but what's where the, would you have been if you didn't have those goals well, at all? The expression is plans are useless, but planning is essential, right? So was there a reason why you started with catering and not opening, going straight to a restaurant? Uh, yes. I So I hit 30. I had my, my son when, let's see, I was in November 90. So I was just, I was 29 years old and I had a, I had a child. Okay. Um, and... You know that 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 makes you want to be home. That 
changes all kinds of oh, stuff. Yeah. But anyway, so I hit 30, and when I hit 30, I was done with my two years of being a chef, and yep. I thought, I don't want to open a restaurant. <laughs> like, this is like the last thing in the world I want to do is Why is that? Why, 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 why I don't know, because the business sucks after a while. You know, yeah. you're just, you know, you hit a certain age, and you're on your feet all the yeah. time, and you're just tired. But you stuck with it. To this day, you're still in the industry. Well, yes and no. Um, but, you know, you, 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 you smell bad all the time. It's just <laughs> like, it's, it's a headache. It's not, you know, there's... there's you can't do something for 40 years and like it all the time. It just, it's impossible. So what so, changed that made you stick, stick with it? Uh, I didn't stick with it. I quit. Okay. Um, and I got a job working for Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart was, right. one, was one of my uh, customers at mm-hmm. the restaurant I was working in. And, and I had, somebody sent me an article that she was starting a magazine. And I wrote to her and I said, hey, you know, hope you like the food. And, and you know, I've, I've been a cook for a long time. And if you need a food editor for your magazine... I'd love to do it, you know, as, as a way of getting out of the business. Yeah. And, and she wrote me back and said, yeah, come on up and let's talk. So I went up to Westport. She offered me the job and I quit the restaurant business and, and uh, um, <laughs> went to collect my last paycheck and was told, oh, we don't have it. And had to threaten to wow. break all the computers in the basement. Did you like day. not give it two weeks' notice or something? Was it a bad? No, I gave separate? two weeks' notice. Okay. He was just a, he was just an asshole. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but but anyway, so so um, I went to Connecticut. And I reverse commuted for a while, and then we found a, a little place out here, and and uh, that was my way of getting out of the city. Uh, it was nineteen ninety. People were getting shot all over the place. It was just yeah. Like, crappy time to be in the city and I was done with the restaurant industry so we moved out here and had a little house and I used to so I drove to Martha's house in Westport and worked on recipes and and uh when did she get mainstream well where was Martha she was mainstream this was she had started her time yeah like the 80s right she's when she really started to like Uh, get mainstream and she was in the 90s was like her heyday no she she depends on whether you're talking about national or regional I mean she was she was a very talented caterer Mm mm-hmm uh, and she published a couple of books um, on catering, and, and those were successful. And, and uh, so her brand kind of blew up on on the basis more of these books. So first she was a, a, a well-known local caterer, and then she was a well-known writer about, you know, catering and entertaining at home. And then with the magazine, she sort of became, you know, larger national yeah. lifestyle. So one world. of the things I'm curious about going through my mind is the, what was your mentality? We talked a lot about your just willingness to go and show up, but uh-huh. also this, like, I don't think people have the gojonas. Most people don't have the gojonas or the, the gusto to just sit down and write somebody like Martha Stewart, celebrity status, and say, hey, I want to come work for you. Like, what was going through your mind? Like, nothing to lose? Like, what yeah, is your nothing, mentality? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. What's the worst, the worst thing that happens? She says no. Yeah. Right? And I, I still have a job. It's like, yeah. But I don't think we take enough chances like this anymore. I think uh, we, I don't know what's going on. Like people just don't like, they don't create their own opportunity. You know, I spend a, a fair amount of my time now. Um, I, I mentor a lot of young founders and CEOs and, and by definition they found me and said, Hey, can I talk to you? So, yeah. so there's still plenty of people who do it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I have some selection bias because I know them. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's a zillion others who don't, but, but no, the world is still full of people who pick up the phone and say, I'd love to meet you. Gotcha. It happens. So you were with Martha. Yeah, you for, did. You did. It. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so yeah. Martha, right. You were with her for a year. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, incredible businesswoman. Yeah. Uh, what were the, the key takeaways from this experience? 
Uh, so everything I've said about having standards, like times 20 to the point where it's like, you know what? I don't want to have standards to that. That's, <laughs> that's just, this looks like no fun. Yeah. Uh, but man, she's good at what she does and, and, and works harder than anyone I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Anyone. I mean, she, I'd get to her house at eight o'clock in the morning. She'd have been up for four hours already. She'd have, you know, worked out, done a ton of research, um, you know, had her day mapped out, uh, you know, tough standards. Yeah. Tough to work. Uh, yeah. Tough yeah. To work for, but, you know? but yeah, very high standards, very bright. So uh, why were you with her for just a year? What was, was it, did you have enough of that world? Uh, I, yeah, publishing and I didn't really get along. I was bored out of my mind. Yeah. Uh, publishing and I just didn't, it was Desk not, job. not my thing. Yeah. yeah I hear you. So yeah. you eventually, and, and, and that job really needed somebody who wasn't me. I was, I was a cowboy chef and it, it wanted a, they, they ended up getting a, a, a baker, who was very good and stayed with it for a long time, but yeah. that's a much more meticulous, mm-hmm. you know, we're planning out a photo shoot. This is yeah. what it's going to look like. I, I, yeah. Gotcha. Not my thing. So what's going through your mind? Cause you, you had already told yourself, okay, I don't want to work in restaurants. Right. Like this isn't for me. You, you get this, this editing job. Yeah. And, and I know by 1996, five years later, so, you're opening a restaurant. Yeah. No. So, so the next, Four years, I did a little of this and a little of that. I actually got a book contract. I did some traveling, writing a, a book on on sort of the food distribution system, okay. where food comes from. I went all over the world uh, researching that. I, I made a living by catering at home. I made part of a living. It was not. It was. It was tight. Uh, I had three small children. Um, my catering was out of the, you know, out of my house. The yep. kitchen was always a disaster. <laughs> my wife would stay up till two doing the dishes while I was out doing jobs and it was, it was, it was not fun. Um, and, but you know, but I was home with my kids yeah. and, and that was nice. I got to see them when they were little, little, uh, and then, and, and just for the hell of it, I, I always, I still do. I help people with business plans or think through what they're doing. Um, you were consulting too, right? Yeah. Kind of, yeah. kind of, sort of. I did some writing. I wrote a couple articles for the times and for, uh, Mademoiselle and things like that. Anyway. Um, and I had a, uh, there was, there was a woman who had a sandwich shop where across the street from Martha's headquarters. Um, and I used to go there all the time and talk to her and her brother decided he wanted to open a restaurant. So he had a place in South Norwalk, Connecticut, which was just a complete shithole, but it was sort of being redeveloped and he Got it. showed it to me and I thought, oh, this is an interesting place for a restaurant. Um, you know, he was originally raising money. I said, I'm not going to give you any money, but, but, um, I'll help you write this business plan so you can raise money. So I spent some time on it with him and, and he went out and he, he raised the money and opened the restaurant. Um, and about a year later, uh, I got a call from a guy who, who knew Phil as well. And he said, I'm trying to open a restaurant. And my friend Phil said, you helped him. And I'm wondering if you would look at this business plan I've put together and maybe professionalize it. So I said, sure, why not? Um, I met with him, and this was the original tapas bar uh, idea, which was brand new. I'd never seen a tapas bar. I had no idea what he was talking about, um, but he had lived in Spain okay. for six, seven years, and this was just the way he liked to eat. Uh, he had this idea. He had worked for another group that said, you know, come be our maitre d' for a year, and then we'll back you in your restaurant. Uh, and, of course, they had yeah. rescinded that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so he was pissed and he had quit and he was out trying to raise his own money um but he had a he had a spot 
It was a long, skinny uh, restaurant. It was across from, they had just opened a movie theater. It was right across the street. Uh, and we talked about, his idea was to have a hamburger stand on one side and a tapas bar on the other side. And, you know, the more I looked at it, the more I thought, this is kind of interesting. You know, I like hamburgers and I love this small plate thing because this is, I go to fancy restaurants and just have three appetizers. Yeah. They get mad at me, and, and but that wasn't really done that much. But that's how I like to eat. This is, this is mid nineties at this point. Mid nineties, right? yeah, yeah nineteen ninety five. And um, so, in order to see what a tapas bar was, we we actually went into New York. New York City was like the only place in the world with more than one tapas bar. So so they had like five. Okay. So we went all over the city and went to each of them. And he would say, "This is not what I want." Now this one, yeah, this dish is okay. That's all right. The rest of this sucks. This is so. He had. Martha's standards, he had Jeremiah's standards. His mm-hmm. standards were very, very high. Um, you know, impossible to please, but that was fine because it was interesting and it was good. Um, and so I came back and I thought, okay, I, I kind of like this food. I know how to make this food. It's not that hard. Um, Is this Sasa? This is Sasha, yeah. Sasha. Sasha, yeah. And I definitely know how to make good burgers because I worked at Hard Rock Cafe and I worked at Stars. Our burgers are, you know, and I make really good burgers. Um, so I, I, I finally said, look, you know, I will help you do this. If you want, I'll, I'll be your partner. I need a job. Uh, <laughs> so this is important right here. I think yeah. one of the things, this is where a lot of restaurant tours get held up, is finding the right partner and finding oh, yeah. somebody that compliments them. Oh, yeah. Uh, or having different vision, like what paint the picture of what your partnership was like early on. How can we recreate what you guys had? What was the magic? It's hard. Sasha, he's a, he's a a uniquely talented person. I I remember like many, many years later when I, when we had a board meeting with, um, you know, Phil Hickey, who's the, the founded rare hospitality. Mm -hmm. He's the, the, you know, CEO of Capitol grill. He's kind of a legend in the industry. And, and, you know, we were talking, Sasha, Sasha was, was upset about something. And, and I said, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I want to make him happy, but this is a problem. And this is a problem. And Phil said, Andy, cause I'm going to tell you something that you and I know and not many other people know. I was like, what's that? He goes, people like us are a dime a dozen people like Sasha do not grow on trees. I'm like, no, I know that. <laughs> He's like, yeah, because because it was funny. I mean, I I ran the company, and he would Sasha drifted in and out, and said, "I want this, and I want that," and and a lot of people rolled their eyes. But it was like, no, running a company is not that hard. Like waking up in the morning and saying, "I've seen something in my head that nobody else sees." That's hard, mm-hmm. and that's that's who he was. Um, and I don't know if I realized that day one, but I did realize that that he had something I didn't. He had a vision. Uh, he had visions, period, right? I mean, I'm really good. I'm a really good executor. If you mm-hmm. say, Andy, this is what has to happen, I'm pretty good at saying, okay, well, I guess then we have to do this first and this first, and you know, when these are done, we'll have to do this. And that, I'm really good at that. Mm-hmm. And I'm good at saying, hey, you know, this was supposed to be done by Tuesday, and it's not. And, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm good at that. I, was, I always quote Gary Vaynerchuk, who says, uh, you're good in the dirt. You're not good in the sky. Exactly. Right? That's and then a, Simon exactly Sinek right. says, you're a, you're a how guy, not a why guy. Exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. Sasha was a white guy. And, and, you know, I'll give myself credit at an early point for saying, I can't do that. I can't do what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was, it was a good partnership. And of course, at the beginning, 
the partnership was really he knew how to do the front door and I knew how to, and I knew how to cook and that yeah. was that was our our payroll right mm-hmm. I mean so so we were able to open so he, he was a front of house guy he was right yeah. okay yeah. so th- I think that's another always like there's the saying there, you can't have too many chefs in the kitchen right, right. and it's such uh-huh. a true saying whenever I see it happen people do it and it works sometimes yeah. but most of the time there's a divide there's a divide and conquer yeah, your we, lane my we f- lane we fought we fought a lot and and and. You know, I tell people who have partners, it's like the most important thing is you have, what we did was we, two things we did that were very important. One was he insisted on being a 50-50 partner. Okay. Period. And no other partners. Because he had been in a situation where it was a 40-40-20 thing. He had 40%. Yep. And the four, the other 40 and 20 kind of ganged up on him and, and yeah. forced him out. And he said, I'm never doing that again. Okay. So, so it was 50-50 and nobody else can come in. And I said, fine. That's all right. So we had to agree. We might, it might take two days and us punching each other to get there. But if we didn't agree, nothing happened. So that mm-hmm. was very important. So and, I think this is a really good time to take our first break to thank okay. our sponsors. And we'll be right back sure. to really unpackage this partnership. What is one of the most overlooked and important marketing tools out there? It's your menu. And honestly, I cannot blame owners for overlooking their menu. It can be super tedious and boring work. Let's be honest. Not to mention it's time consuming between all the other channels of marketing, i.e. social media, direct mail marketing and managing your operations and customer relations. Who has the time to dink around with their menu? Not many people, right? So that's why I'm super excited to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. From the website to the marketing to the contactless ordering, Pop Menu is the full digital solution for your restaurant. Pop Menu also provides a dynamic mobile-friendly menu that hooks your customers from the start. And this is a really cool tool. Diners have the ability to leave dish reviews, which really helps your menu speak for itself. Beyond these engaging features, Pop Menu provides marketing tools to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. For example, you have the power to send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders or promote new dishes. You can even set up online ordering and delivery direct through Pop Menu. This means less ordering complications and loss commission to third-party apps. We all love that. Frankly speaking, when Pop Menu reached out to me to be a sponsor, I didn't know much about them. We all know my rules that I only promote the tools and services that are recommended on the show. So I had to reach out to my network to get their approval. And I have to tell you, the feedback has been nothing but positive. People really like the menu review feature, the email marketing integration, and the fast and friendly customer support, which cannot be overlooked. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you can lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and you were just telling us about partnerships, uh, why it was important for you and Sasha to do 50 50, uh, the issues he's had in the past when, mm-hmm. when he did three way partnerships. Uh, take it from there. Well, I, what I said, there were, there were two really key elements to our partnership working. One was that 50 50 thing. And the second one was we agreed at some point, maybe not the first day, but early on, that we would have what we called spheres of influence, right? So things over here, I'm drawing a circle on the table for your radio listeners. Um, <laughs> That was his. Okay. Things over here, these were mine. Mm. Right? And we would have opinions about it. Sasha had very strong opinions about food. I mean, he's, he's a great cook. His taste buds are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's really good with food. 
Um, so he had strong opinions about food, but food was mine. Mm-hmm. I have opinions about restaurant layout and design, right? I mean, I, 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 I care about it, but that was his. Mm-hmm. So we could argue about it, but in the end... You're making the decision. I'm making the decision. Yeah. He's making the decision. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this reminds me so much of uh, the e-myth, right? In, in that book, he, he talks about, uh, Michael Gerber talks about writing down every responsibility in a business, no matter what that business is or a restaurant, and then putting a name next to the person who's responsible. It's, it's huge. It's, it's huge. so important. It's huge. And the only times that we ever really fought uh, were on the things that were somewhat overlapping, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so if there was a dish on the menu that maybe you know, he came up with her, it was his mother's or something. And I was the one cooking it. His, you know, he felt like his opinion was just as valid as mine. Or when we designed restaurants and it was more of a layout function issue, right? It wasn't purely how the place looked, but it was more like how many steps was it to get from, you know, the walk into here. Then I felt like that was my issue as well. So, so those are the ones where we really went at it was, was, was places where it wasn't clearly defined whose responsibility was. So from day one, when you guys first started visioning, you first started driving around, having, you know, tasting restaurants in New York City, trying to find out exactly what you want to do, was the vision always the scale? What was the vision from day one? Where did you guys want to take this thing? We just you, wanted a job. You just wanted a job. I just wanted a job. Yeah. What were the first, like, reflecting back at those early years, you, you already talked about staying in your lanes, dividing and conquering, uh, respecting each other's, you know, uh, you know, responsibilities. Uh, what else were you doing right early on that you think set you up for success? As a partnership? Uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you exactly what it was. Early on, I don't remember if this was after restaurant one or two or three or whatever it was, but uh, we had a conversation about something and I said to him, look, for this to work, I have to know. Are you doing this to fulfill some artistic need or are you doing this to make money? And he said, make money. And I said, okay. So we're both doing this for the same reason. That's a good thing because where you really have problems with partnerships is where where they don't agree on that. Yeah, right? and because it's it, it's every decision every day. Yeah, and I don't want to speak out of turn. I, I I'm in preparation for the conversation I was going to have with Michael Chernow. I know that partnerships was something that was public. Uh, that they there was an issue with partnerships yep. and, and in exactly what you're talking about where one person wanted to dial it back and the other person wanted to go, go, go scale. Yep. Uh, and it's really important that you are aligned with what the, what the, I, I would go is. one further. I would go, you know, let's say you're in a successful partnership, but it's been a while and you come to the day where one person is in it to make more money and the other person has enough money and is in it for, you know, to, to do something beautiful, you should dissolve that partnership. Yeah. yeah. I think you kind of see this with Ari Weinswag and Paul Saginaw too, but what they decided to do was scale locally, mm-hmm. you know? So there's, there is a balance that can be met. Uh, the, what I mean by scale locally is they took that Zingerman's school of business, that thought of business and just like recreated that, that, philosophy of those core values in, in right. different businesses. So there's ways you can find balance if you want to scale and stay local or whatever it is you're trying to do. Right. Um, but not to digress, sorry. <laughs> no, but, it, but this is, this becomes everyone's issue all the time, right? I mean, this is, I, I can't tell you how many people say, Hey, I want to do what you do. I want to have this big national empire. I want to sell it for lots of money, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, what should I do? And I say, it's really simple. Just be comfortable putting your house on a loan. <laughs> And 
live on an airplane. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if you can do those two things. And you just see their eyes glaze over. They're do like, really oh, I don't know. I don't want to do that. Yeah, it's like, exactly. okay, that's fine. And, and, and there's no reason why you should. Yeah. But you asked me a question and that's the that's answer. The answer. Yeah. If you're, yeah. if you're okay with those things, then, then great. So we've been pretty granular up to this point. Let's zoom up to 30,000 feet real quick. Okay. So you start, you open, um, Barcelona wine bar to 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, you open, Bar Taco in 2010, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened? Take us through like in like a minute or two minutes. Like well, we the, opened, the, we the opened, growth of the business. Yeah, it didn't. It doesn't grow like that, right? So we opened Barcelona in 96. Uh, we took us a year. We were losing money. It looked like it looked like the scenes from, uh, what's it called? From Big Night. You'd stand outside the door and there'd be a Japanese place across the street and they were full and we were empty <laughs> and they're just, you know, a lot of Sasha would call his friends and he had a lot of friends and say, I want everyone to come down on Thursday yeah. and, you know, I'll buy you all drinks uh, just to fill the place. And, it's my intention to really pull back the layers and how you guys went from like the first year to yeah. like not really being worried to like where you were in 2010, but just paint the picture of what well, happened. I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, so, so, in 98, we, we were doing well, and we decided, oh, we'll do another restaurant. And we took over a, uh, a spot. It was a fancy Italian restaurant. Uh, had a great chef. Uh, it was behind a theater, so you couldn't really see it very well. And the parking lot was full when the theater was full. Uh, but we figured it was a great restaurant, and didn't matter. People would come. And we were wrong. It was a crappy location, and they didn't come where they did come, and there was no parking. Uh, and around the same time, other people came to us and said, oh, we'd love to give you money to open a restaurant in Greenwich and, you know, get the best chef out of New York and do something fantastic. So I thought that was a bad idea, but Sasha and another partner went and did that. Um, so we had all these going at once, and they both failed. They both failed. The they, Italian restaurant and the other project. They both failed, yeah. And, and so we lost all our investors' money in the Italian one, um, and then the other one was just hemorrhaging cash and Sasha and the partner came to me and said you know I know you don't want anything to do with this restaurant but can you help and I said I'll help if you get rid of that partner Ooh. and you fire the chef because I've been telling you forever yeah that he's an asshole and he's not as good as you think he is um and so they they did uh and so we went and raised money and said hey we're opening our second Barcelona we're going to take this restaurant and for 250,000 bucks, we're going to change all the matchbooks and the menus and it's going to be Barcelona number two. Uh, and that was a slog. So we had to sort of recap it and give people more equity in it. And, and, um, but we couldn't think of anything else to do, right? We, we just couldn't, if we had just gone belly up with this, this thing in Westport, we couldn't do it again in Greenwich. We just couldn't afford it. Um, so we, on a dime, we, we turned it into Barcelona number two. Uh, reopened it on September 11th, 2001, which was promptly closed it again. Uh, opened it, you know, the next day because people were staying home from New York and didn't know what to do with themselves. So we reopened it, had a nice bar, and, and it was full. Um, and within six months, we had paid back most of the debt from the... The partnership uh, that dissolved. From the partnership that dissolved. And by the end of the first year, we were making money, and, you know, people liked Barcelona. So now there was one in Norwalk and one in Greenwich. And we thought, okay, well, we're not geniuses, but this means something. Yeah. <laughs> so in answer to your 30,000-foot view, uh, a few years later, we got offered a nice spot to do something. And we said, okay, we'll do another Barcelona there. Um, and that's what we did. Every couple of years, we would 
make enough money to borrow half and put up half from cash flow and do another Barcelona. So uh, by 2008, we had six Barcelonas. We had, let's see, Norwalk, Greenwich, Fairfield, West Hartford, New Haven, and then we opened Stanford. So we had six Barcelonas. Um, And at some point during that process, uh, we had decided that the way to do this would just be to form a Barcelona restaurant corp. Who's you know and and stick, yeah uh, no no nope, just not, Barcelona okay. yeah. and stick a little money in the bank and uh, use it to keep opening Barcelonas and and it, and then I needed to have a real accountant and I needed to sit down with him and say what does this look like how do you, you know, I mean and so he showed me how to pro forma like the growth of it we didn't really know where it was going but we knew that if we raised still more money that we had a lot of people to pay back and so we would have to grow this at some point we didn't really know how you got out of that but yeah yeah. Um, and that got to about 2008. Okay. So now let's get back into our helicopter and hover real okay. low and get granular again. Thank you for that big picture. So mm-hmm. 96 to 98, you said it took you to really get to the point where you're doing well. Yes. What were the things that happened and changed to pivot? It was just word was getting out. Like what things did you, did you do anything differently or is it just that time that is, does it just take two years to get to the point where people know about you? That's a great question. And, and, and I don't, I, I couldn't, give you a hundred percent certain answer. I, I think, you know, we had the hamburger place. We had the tapas place yeah. and the tapas place we had set up with, no, we want to do what we want to do. We don't give a shit what anybody else wants. It's going to be an authentic Spanish tapas bar. There's good. The bartender's going to serve you We had toaster ovens and microwaves under the bar and a giant ice thing behind that. And that's just, that's the food. And of course people came in and said, you know, we'd love a waiter. And do you guys have steaks? And we said, no, we're a tapas bar. We don't have steaks. And, and so they would say, Oh, okay. And they'd leave. And at a certain point, we said, you know, maybe we should have a steak. It's like, how about paella? And Sasha was like, no, no paella. You don't, tapas bars don't do paella. It has to be done on top of the oven. If you do it in the oven, it's no good. And I was like, well, dude, you can do a pretty good paella in the oven. So this is the kind of fight we would have over this stuff. And, um, you know, so so in the end, we we bent towards what people wanted to a certain point Mm -hmm. and then not to a certain point. You're always kind of... You know, there's a sliding scale when you have a restaurant concept. And on one side of the scale is, I'll make whatever people want. And then the other side of the scale is, no, I'll make what I want and people will like it or they don't. And then, and every restaurant, every concept has to decide where they are on that sliding scale. And there's no right answer to it. I don't want to imply that, that there's a magic spot. It depends on your concept, depends on who your customers are, depends on your price point, right? I mean, if, if you're, you know, if you're, Thomas Keller, then your scale can be way the hell over here on the right. Yeah. And if you're making, you know, if you're fast food wings, it probably better be way over here on the left. Yeah. Um, This is something that comes up. This is like one of the things, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything because interviewing people, some people will say exactly what you said, where you got to do exactly what is true to you and what you're doing. Cause at the end of the day, like you're the one that has to show up. And if you're not passionate about it, then right. you won't have the endurance on the other side. They say, that's you gotta, called, by the way, that's called a hobby. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On the other side, unless you're freakishly like good and people want what your hobby and is, even if you're freakishly good, it's still, a hobby. It, but there's a chance that that's not going to happen. It's because not a business model. It's yeah. A hobby. But people get lucky, you know, and they, yeah. the people want to pay for you to do your hobby, but that's not the, the likely scenario. The more likely scenario is, you know how to give people what they want. Um, it's somewhere in between, but like, and I agree with what you're saying is that it's, there's a balance to everything. Right. There is no right answer. It's, right. it's what's right for you. And I what's hate right Budweiser. For I think Budweiser tastes like shit, right? Mm-hmm. Never had it on the bar. People ask for it all the time. No, I'm not giving it to you. 
It's crappy beer. Yeah. Here's something that's like Budweiser, but a lot better. But, but I love that answer that you gave us. Right. Is that, that like there is a, that it's in the between? Like you gotta, you gotta find that sweet yeah. spot where you're, that's right. you're, you're, you gotta. What's the word? Um, when two people get together and they have, to, oh, what's the word? Uh, compromise. Compromise. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's a great answer. I'm, I'm curious. You, you, you mentioned the burger stand. The burger stand isn't going to this day. Is okay, it? so I'm getting to the burger stand. Okay. So so here we are with this tapas bar slash. We have you know one good steak and one chicken. I think I don't know and one fish. That was our that was our entrees. You know, this again compromise. You yep. can't have everything you want. We have a steak. We have a chicken. We have a fish. If mm-hmm. you like them, great. If you don't, too bad. Um, but. <laughs> One day, and again, this is where Sasha gets far more credit than I do um, for, for being a visionary. One day, as with most days, the line to get into the tapas bar only has 28 seats, right? So it's got like some high tables and bar stools. Got it. Uh, actually, it's 42 seats if you include the bar stools. So, so anyway, um, the line to get in the tapas bar goes out the door onto the street and back into the burger place. So the people were eating, and the burger place was doing fine, but people eating burgers were typically looking at the rear ends of people waiting in line to get into the tapas bar. And one day Sasha said, you know, we should just get rid of the burger place. I was like, what do you mean <laughs> get rid of the burger place? We, you know, this costs a lot to build that burger place and we've been workshopping this stuff forever and people love the burger place. And he's like, yeah, but you know, let's get rid of it. Which was again, not my, not the way I think. Yeah. Right. That that's not a process decision, but you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, he's, you know, I, I, I guess he's right. And so we killed the burger place and turned it into a dining room. Okay. And lo- that, Sorry, keep going. Well, I'm just saying, you know, we added 30-something seats, and they were crowded because it was a burger place. Yeah. I mean, they were next to each other, but people filled it up, and they loved it. So it's funny because originally what I was curious, I was about to ask about the burger place, and my uh-huh. thought is, like, they're smart because they have their simple cash cow burger concept where they can just do burgers and fries. It's completely, hedging. It's completely hedging it in case nobody And that would be what the kept you afloat, right? Yep. It's, yep. it's smart, like it easy. Yep. And like, that was what I was thinking. I was like, that's really smart. But now I'm thinking that wasn't the case because the, the, the tapas bar was so successful. But who or, knew, right? Yeah, yeah. but that, that is smart. And I think that is, that's a big lesson to, to, to pull is like, if you're doing something, you're, if you're testing a market, if you can do something else to kind of like be your cash cow to like, to support you, to keep the boat afloat while the other thing that is a test needs momentum to like take off. Right. It's like, it's, you're, you're extending your runway in a I sense. Heard, but, I heard a, uh, uh, this was a while ago. Uh, Joe Connolly used to do interviews on, on CBS radio. This is 20 years way before Guy Raz. Yeah. Uh, how you, Joe Connolly used to do something like, and he was interviewing somebody who had this huge retail chain, and the guy, he was talking about how he started his business at Yonkers Raceway in the flea market. And Joe Connolly said, do you remember like what your biggest seller was? He goes, oh, hell yeah, I do. He goes, it was a rainbow-colored poncho. It was like back in the you know hippie days, yeah. and it was this you know cloth poncho. And Joe Connolly said, and... You know, do you know why that was? And the guy goes, "No." He says, "I have no idea. It's retail." He goes, "I have no idea why people bought it." He said, "The only thing I did know was I better hurry up and get a lot more ponchos." Uh, yeah. And and I I remember listening to that and thinking that is that is like great business advice. <laughs> so I don't know why they wanted the tapas place, but once you realize that they do, it's like okay, let go, let go of the burger place, yeah. let go. You need those like two seconds of math will tell you that. You know, chairs and tables in there, and no people in the kitchen in the burger place is a much better deal for you than than continuing to run this second operation. So let's get into like the the economics of this. So okay. basically, when you extend it to the 
you, when you moved, when you absorbed the burger place, mm-hmm. now you're you don't have to employ the people to run the burger place. So your labor expenses are going down and you're increasing the amount of seats. Was the burger place not performing as well? No, it did fine. It did did fine. fine. But you just knew that if you could lower your expenses by... You you, you can never compare the economics of just adding seats with with an entire restaurant. I mean, adding seats is always the cheapest thing you can do. Mm -hmm. So you're reducing your overhead and you're increasing your volume. Yeah. And you're not pissing everybody off who wants to sit down because remember it got really crowded in that bar and some of the clientele, here we are in the suburbs. It's not all, you know, cool 23 year olds. And this happened in the first two years. This happened in the first two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Uh, a lot of the people who came in our our clientele, you asked why we were successful. A lot of them were refugees from Manhattan. Like I was like, like we all were, mm -hmm. you know, we're in suburban Connecticut and most of our best clientele would walk in and say, Oh, thank God. Like, yeah. and Sasha's a, Sasha's a great designer. It was a sexy room. It looked like nothing else around. It, it, it was just a beautiful restaurant. That vision coming through. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was a perfectionist. Every little detail, you know, the, he'd go in the bathroom and, you know, decide which little strips would go next to the lamps and he would go, you know, into, he only bought stuff on the Bowery. Um, and, you know, people would come in and say, this is what I missed, right? When I left the New York, I, you know, I had the kid, I had the dog, I had to leave, but I missed this. Yeah, the, right. the other thought I had too, Tapas, 1996, 1998, that not a lot of people are doing that at this no, point. No, that was actually the hard part. And we would tell people we had a tapas bar and they would look at us a little funny and you'd say, no, it's not a topless bar. It's a tapas. <laughs> no, that went on for, I mean, you would think that would be a one-year thing. That went on for five but years. But tapas didn't really take off until the mid-2000s, until yeah. it was really nationwide, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, having a unique selling proposition is probably something that served you because you can go to where you were and get tapas anywhere. Yeah, there. that's a two-edged sword, right? I mean, you can't get you know, Bhutanese food here either. It doesn't mean you're going to do well because you're mm-hmm. the first one. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it has to be something people want. So it was just you and Sasha. He was front of house. You were back of house for how long? Um, probably a year. And then I could afford chef. Okay. Thank God. Because then, somebody cool. else, somebody had to do all the other stuff too. <laughs> yeah. So how did your role change? If, as you started replacing yourself as, from, as the head chef? Um, that's a really good question. I, I, I think my role changed because we opened the second restaurant and I just had to be, you know, okay. the person putting it together. And when Sasha stopped being the front door guy, we hired a a waiter who had been a maitre d' at a bunch of restaurants and he was just really good and he had a huge following and that was a big piece. He, you know, he, once we opened that second, the dining room part, then he was in his element. I mean, mm. he didn't, it, it, it's hard to maitre d' a bar. Mm-hmm. But once we had a dining room, his people showed up and they spent a lot more money and our wine list improved and, and all that stuff. Um, so, so we turned into much more of a, a restaurant when Got that it. happened. Got um, it. Uh, you did mention the other two restaurants that failed, the mm-hmm. Italian restaurant, and I don't know what the other restaurant concept was. It's called Wildfire. Wildfire. Um, you did say something about the location being crap, no parking. Yeah. Do you want to like reflect on some of the lessons learned? As oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Location, location, location. And, and I tell people all the time, if you build it, they will not come. Do not do not make that mistake, and people do it anyway. What was what was specifically that was bad about this location that we should be aware of? Well, like it was behind. It was it, it had no street frontage. It was literally behind a theater, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got you. Um, I mean, if you you know, there's a there's a limited number of things that people will you know climb a mountain and cross a desert to go eat. Yeah. It. And and if you're not one of those very 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 limited things, if you don't have three stars and and you're not offering something that people have to have, um, they're just not going to do it. Yeah. It's like you know, on a rainy day, you know, they won't come. 
So, so. there's another thing too that I've, that I've seen that's a commonality is when you start really small, like you said, 28 seats, mm-hmm. and you can and you can absorb the buildings or the the spaces that are immediately adjacent because it allows for that slow, gradual scale. Yeah. Right. So uh, so so this was another lesson. What happened was we had opened that, and then uh, there's a vacant lot next to us. It was rubble, and it was owned by the same landlord who owned our place, and. I don't remember if he came to us or we came to him and just said, hey, can we turn this into like a patio because we have so much demand in the summer? And he said, sure. So we had a, uh, you know, we signed a lease with him and uh, Sasha built this beautiful, I mean, you know, like woven wood uh, fence around it, completely like enclosed walls. That's what he likes to do. He doesn't like anybody to see anything from the outside. You know, it's, it's, it's a little world and it was a beautiful patio and people came, you know, from all over to, to eat in this thing. It was fantastic. And we built a big fireplace at the end of it, which was a headache to run because, you know, there was no communication. There's no wireless back then. So you'd have to run tickets in and out from outside. It was just a, you know, giant mess. Everything was, we had to just pull it out of our ass every day. But, but you know, we, were, we, we worked hard and, and we were good at what we did and we pulled it off and people appreciated it. Um, but one day I got a note from my landlord saying, uh, yeah, you know, we're going to build a building there. So need to take the property back. And I went. Fuck, you know that's our that's that's a big money maker for us. Yeah. I was really bummed out, and I went to one of my biggest uh, investors, who his office was down the street. Very smart business guy, you know, good guy. I, and I, he was my sounding board as I was learning how to run a business. And I showed him the letter, and I said, you know, this is awful. And he said, "Don't you have a lease?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Let me see the lease." So I went back and, you know, walked over two blocks, got the lease, went back, gave it to him. He read it. He goes, you have no problem. <laughs> and I said, really? He goes, no. Nah. He goes, here. And he gave, me, he, he gave me a lawyer's phone number. He said, call this guy. So by building that building, they were breaking the terms of your uh-huh. lease. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I called the, so I called the lawyer. I didn't know any of this stuff. So, so I called the lawyer and the lawyer looks at the lease and he said, yeah, I'm going to write a letter. So he wrote a letter. Next thing I get, I get a call from the landlord. Hey, you know, we should figure out some way to work this out. And, <laughs> and I went back to the landlord and the landlord uh, to the lawyer and the lawyer said, no, we don't have to figure out a way to work this out. <laughs> he has to figure out a way to work this out. Uh, and what ended up happening was we said, fine, you can build this building, but where our current patio is, you have to build a dining room mm. with bathrooms, you know, and with a hundred seats. Okay. Yeah. It became the bottom floor of the building. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So what's the lesson here? Uh, lawyers can be very useful. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I spent as, as anybody who's done what I've done, uh, you know, at the scale I've done it spends an enormous amount of their time negotiating and reading leases. And that was really the first time I, I realized that there was some actual power in the language of these things. I, mm-hmm. I never occurred. I mean, cause when you're, when you're starting out, it's just, you're just asking favors for land from landlords. All, yeah. all, all new restaurateurs are yep. just, are completely unaware of any leverage they have. Um, and, and most of them, to be fair, don't have any leverage, right? Yeah, What's uh, the whole point of creating the leases to put things, to make it concrete, to yeah. make it fixed. So you yeah. can't get taken advantage of but put it in writing. Yeah. But again, you're a new restaurant person. You're very fixated on why didn't the chicken come at two o'clock yeah. and now you're consumed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So th- th- I think the, the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned during this show is there's two people that you want to outsource so to the first two people you outsource to first an accountant, second a lawyer, the two expenses that you just put up, like just, just, you just, pay, just because, pay for it because yeah. you, it will pay for itself it, in the it, long yeah. run. It does. It, it does. does. Yeah. And, and you can't use, 
a friend who's a lawyer who does a lot of divorce work, but who who will look at your lease. Now you use real estate. I mean, it's it's expensive to have all these lawyers, but but it's also expensive not to. It's very expensive not to because <laughs> you would have lost yeah. that summer business otherwise. Oh, you know, I mean, like, I, yeah, yeah, and and. Uh, you know, our early partnership agreements. Not just, only did you lose the summer business, but you also gain now that seasonal year round extra 100 tables, yep. you know, yep. all because you, you forked up the money for a lawyer, for a lawyer. right? That's exactly Huge. right. But also, and let's, let's be fair. The lawyer wouldn't have happened if I didn't maintain a mentor relationship another with a too. really, you know, smart guy who was one of my investors, which is another lesson, which mm-hmm. is when you get investors, don't just are they just bringing money? Are they just bringing money? Yeah. Yeah. You want a relationship, yeah. right? What yeah. value do you bring? How are you going to make your investment more likely to succeed? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I love that. That's great. Uh, so I also love your rate of scale. I think most people get in trouble when they try to scale, they get over their skis. We built when we could afford it. Um, Cash flow and people yeah. that determines your growth, right? Yeah. And you one, said every couple of years, one every couple of years. And during this time, Sasha, he just continually wanted to open something else. He wanted to do Chinese restaurants. He wanted to do steak restaurants, every, everything imaginable. And, and one of my few superpowers is focus. And mm. I was like, no, no, we're not going to do that. Nope. Why Great. is that so powerful? Because it's hard enough to do one thing well, right? Um, and, you know, Sasha was convinced that we could do 100 things well. And I had seen firsthand that we could not do 100 things well, first of all. And second of all, you know, he wasn't doing the day-to-day of running six restaurants, and that was, you know, you only have so many hours in a day. People don't... He wasn't doing the day-to-day of six restaurants. He was not doing the day-to-day. So he was focused on maitre d'ing that one? Or no, 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 no. He he was long since out of the dining room. He was he was the one, you know, conceptualizing the... I mean, to build a new restaurant, just because we do one every two years doesn't mean we're always not doing it, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a while to build these yeah. things. And, you know, and he had you know, tons of menu... Uh, um, I listened to his menu advice. Even though food was technically mine, he was the one who ate out all the time and had ideas, and and so so he drove a lot of the menu. How did that um, affect your relationship? This guy being such a visionary, creative, wanting to build, 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 do new things, new things. You holding him back, saying let's focus on doing one thing really well, mm-hmm. which is just a testament of your of the the well it goes the back chemistry to what, of your, your, your goes partnership back to, goes back to what i said right which is that very early discussion are you doing this to get your yayas out or to make money? so you why you guys have, you, you agreed yeah. on the same yeah. why yeah. and then yeah. that brings you and, back and, saying, and i could what say yeah no this is not how we're going to make money yeah right like, so coming to terms on why yeah. is so important early yeah. on so you can go back mm-hmm. to that and say remember this is what we're trying but, to do but in the end you know it, it I'm, I'm painting it as an easy decision it's not because in the end you know he's probably more right than i am um, because one of the things he really wants to do was was a Mexican restaurant. We were looking at doing a, uh, a Barcelona at Mohegan Sun. Okay, right. That that negotiation went on for three years, and we would drive up and down, you know, to Mohegan and look at the space. And and um, on the way, uh, Sasha would always stop in New Haven because there were these taco trucks parked um, off of Exit Forty Six on Ninety Five, which is they're phenomenal taco trucks. And uh, he had this dream of, of opening a taco truck restaurant. It was like basically a shack where you would open the side of it and you would do these kind of mom, you know, there'd be a, a, somebody's grandmother in there like yeah. ladling, you know, pozole out and, and, and making tacos were topped with uh, chopped onions and cilantro, just like, you know, little, little handheld street tacos for a buck fifty. And I'm assuming this was like early 2000s, mid 2000s? Mid 2000s, yeah. yeah. So that's a visionary moment yeah. right there oh, too. Yeah. yeah. No, he's, he's, he's ahead of the game. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
um, so he was hounding me and he would go off and with real estate brokers and find a space and say, Hey, good news. I found a space. I'd talk to the landlord. We have a lease. And I would say, okay, I'm not signing it. So you want to do it? You go do it. And that would usually kind of be the end of that conversation. Yeah. But, but he was, he was very focused on this thing. So just to, to circle around a little bit, uh, in 19, in 2008, our, our, uh, Greenwich lease came up. And it was one of the few fair market value leases we had. And so the landlord wanted to jack our rent and I wanted to tell him to fuck off. And so we were looking around for other places that we could do a Barcelona if we had to walk away. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of my chefs said, well, I have a friend, he has a lobster place on the water and he only uses it three months a year. Uh And his sister wants to be in the restaurant business that he doesn't, you should go. So I went and visited him and, Beautiful space on the water, crappy building. Uh, you know, it's just a big a cement shell. Half of it is a, is a lobster pound being run by you know wholesalers, and mm-hmm. the other half is a bait shop with picnic tables out back that he does lobster. And I said, you know, it's a good spot. You could do something with it. You know, do you want? To? And he called me back and said, yeah, my sister doesn't want to sell. She likes being in the restaurant business. I said, like, okay, well, if that ever changes, let me know. Okay. Um, so. You know, and I would call him every few months. How's that? How's it go? How's the restaurant business? I hate it. You know, and that would go back and forth. <laughs> so sometime in '09, uh, we were in the depths of the recession. Like life sucked. Uh, Bar- Barcelona's were doing well. We had made a conscious decision in '07 to actually lower prices because we sort of. I, f- I didn't feel good about the economy. We had lowered some prices uh, just to just to keep business, and then we had a lot of trade down. Uh, because we sort of sensed what was going to happen. What do you mean by trade down? Well, in 08, we sort of sensed what was going to happen. We said, look, here's what's going to happen. A bunch of people who are normally eating at Thomas Henkelman or Ruth's Chris or like these places, they're going to, they're not going to have any money, and, but they're not suddenly going to learn how to cook. So yeah. they're going to start trying restaurants that are a little cheaper. They're not going to change their habits. They're, they're not going to change their habits. Modify. They're going to come somewhere cheaper. And yeah. we're one of the places they're going to come. And if they come in and they feel like they've like been demoted because they don't have money, it's going to suck. Mm-hmm. But if they walk into our place and they get exactly the same quality food and the exact same service that they had at Ruth's Chris only for half the price, we keep them forever. Well, half the price, is that just because of the portions? I mean, tapas yeah, partly, are doing... It's partly the portions. I think that, yeah. I mean, was probably one of the big reasons why in 2007, 2008, tapas really started to yeah. go nationwide. Yeah, no, but, we, but we made a conscious effort. I mean, we yeah. looked at the wine list. We looked at everyone on the list. We, we lowered the price of the, of the bottom ones, right? We left yeah. the middle ones alone, but mm-hmm. we lowered the bottom ones. So, so you could come in and have this, you know, an experience of the same... You're getting the same food and service that you got at Ruth's Christ. You're not getting the same decor. You're not yeah. getting the same, you know, the distance between the tables. Yeah. But, but we said, no, we're, we're going to... Actively go after every time somebody comes in that you haven't seen before, you go get the manager, the manager comes over, you find out where they're from, and I want to keep all these people. So that was, that was, it was a strategy. Anyway, moving forward to 09, we were doing okay. We were doing pretty well, actually. And, um, and uh, the, the, the guy calls me and says, hey, you know, do you still want this place? <laughs> and I called Sasha, who was just driving me crazy with this stupid Mexican thing, and I said, okay. There's a waterfront place, yeah. right? We can't use it because we signed our Greenwich lease. Yeah. The only thing I can use it for is another restaurant. You want to do your Mexican thing, do it here because, like, how bad can it be? You're on the water. You're in Port Chester. You've got all your and, – and the original idea was these, like, club kids would come in at 2 o'clock in the morning looking for some greasy food after drinking all night. Yeah. And that was, that was the Bar Taco plan. So, so you know, we, the idea was to take this building and spend $600,000 converting it. And, of course, Sasha spent $2.2 $2 Um <laughs> 
but he built a beautiful deck on the water yeah. and, and we got new investors for it because I didn't want it to touch Barcelona. I was like, okay, don't, don't take my, my carefully honed Barcelona yeah, my, machine. My don't take it down <laughs> <laughs> with your $2.2 million build yeah. out of something that, that isn't going to work. Um, and so we opened up, our taco opened at the end of 2010. Uh, and, you know, it was, we opened in December. And the first week of January, I got a call from the manager saying, hey, can you come down? It was like 8 o'clock at night. Can you come down here? I'm like, sure. What's the matter? He goes, nothing's the matter. I could just use the, I could use the help. And I got down there, and Sasha was down there, and Scott, my COO, was down there. And there's a line out the door of people like in Jaguars and, and you know, Bentleys uh, wearing, you know, minks because it's yeah. cold, trying to get in. I'm like, what the hell is this? He goes, I have no idea. And it was just... Bar Taco was huge with the, the you know, the Scarsdale, Harrison, Greenwich, Darien crowd from day one. I still can't tell you why, uh, but it was just enormous success. And uh, so, so long way of getting back around to my story of, of focus uh, and holding Sasha back, you know. Who knows if I hadn't held him back? We'd have 10 great concepts. I don't know. Yeah, but I think at the same time, you're able to get stability with one concept, yes. have plenty of cash flow from yes. that, which freed you up. And Plus, I mean, when you have that track record of success, people are more likely to give you more money. Well, you know, getting right? more money is not a problem. When you have a successful restaurant, people show up all over the place and say, I'd like to give you money to open a restaurant. That That is the easiest so thing in the world. That's actually one thing I'm, I'm happy we're getting into this because your, your patterns seem to be a restaurant every two years, you'd put up half and you'd get half from investors. Yeah, so no new investors. No, no, no new investors. The no half, new. we would put up half from uh, cash flow of the existing restaurants yep. and borrow half from the bank. Okay. So, half debt, half equity. So w- why this approach? Like, what's, what's the... No new investors. No, I hate, why yeah, is that? Pain in the ass raising money. So, raising money sucks. Okay. That's, that was my original thought, but I, I was confused by you. I thought maybe you, you were getting investors for each new restaurant. No, 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 no. That's okay. a terrible way to do it. Okay. Don't I, do that. Yes. Why? Um, because if you ever want to have something worthwhile, well, there's a few reasons. The first one is if you ever want to sell it, it's impossible, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, the private equity groups, they hate multiple investor groups. Uh, the second one is you get in fights, right? Because... You know, you raise some money from this group for this restaurant and some money from that group for that restaurant, and this one's doing well and that one's doing badly. It's like, like, what's going on they're here? like, yeah, why aren't you spending jealous. all your time over yeah. here? Not jealous, but just like... Pissed? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you should be in this one all the time yeah. until we get our money back. And and then, God forbid, somebody makes a bit, you know, offers to give you money for both of them. Yeah. It's like, okay, how are we allocating it? So for the first Barcelona wine bar, you mm-hmm. had investors. And then every restaurant thereafter was you put up half and you got a loan from the bank. That's right. Except for, except for the first two, the, the Italian one and the one in Greenwich. Those Which were different investor fails. groups. Yeah. The failures. Yeah. Right. But by 2008, when you have 10 locations or eight locations, six, six Barcelonas six. and we had, and we did Bartaco. I got a new investor group for Bartaco. Were you still paying back your original investors by 2006 when you had that many locations? Uh, what I did with the original investors, we, we, we did it in the form of a note. So if you gave us $10,000, it was a $9,600 note and you owned 1%, the, the, the stub. What do you mean by a note? And we were borrowing money. Got it. You got it. 14%. Yeah. So, you know, the, the world had different interest rates in 1995. Got it. But, but if you gave me $10,000, I would give you, you had given me a loan of 9,600 and the other 400 was your equity. You owned 1%. That was, that was the deal. And what we 
did early on again new learning for me what the hell did i know one day i'm i'm you know talking to a table the guy's a commercial banker from citibank he wants to know how we set this up i told him he said you're paying how much i said 14 percent. he goes do you guys make money i said yeah we do pretty well he goes come see me tomorrow <laughs> so i go in the next day literally the next day i go to see the guy he he sits me down with the loan officer the guy writes me a check for three hundred and twenty thousand dollars which is what we had raised yeah and I paid everybody back and got rid of my 14% interest. And I, I, I think it was, I got it down to eight or something. So like you that. basically got rid of the loan. Uh, I mean, you still owed the money, but you just consolidated. No, at this point, I didn't owe them any money. But I, you still owed the bank the 300000 I owed the bank the but money. But you used a lower interest rate. No, lower interest rate. And I had five years to pay back. And I wasn't having to tell people, I'm sorry, I'll get you your money soon. Right? Got it, you got know. it. Yeah, monthly rates. Yeah, five years is a lot different than just having it hang over your head. And it feels good to give all your investors back their money. I mean, yeah. it's, it's easy from there. So uh, let's jump up the 30,000 feet again real quick. Cause by 2010, um, you now are, you, you're comprised of Bartek or you, you are now six Bar-Teca. Barcelona's and a Bartaco. Yeah. Um, by 2018, you sell. Yes. Uh, at that point you had 22 total locations or 21, like 10 and 10 or no, 10 no, and 11. More, more than that. We had 30 in 2018. We had 34. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I guess the thing I'm curious, I want to talk about what you're doing now and how you're helping people and what advice you have for people mm-hmm. who might approach you or want to take the path that the people you work with take when they're working with you, if that makes any sense. But really talk about your evolution from like 2000, this point, like 2010, where you really start to get to the point where you're, you're now, you know, not just a couple of restaurants, like you're, you're scaling. How, how were you evolving as a professional, how did your role change? How did Sasa's role change? How did you guys put your, your you know, you're already wearing your big boy pants. But now you're wearing your, like your big boy suit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I guess. Um, a couple answers to that. So, so one is, you know, it has to be something you enjoyed at some point when I sold it, I, it was not that much fun at mm-hmm. that point. Right. But, but early on, you know, when, when you start in the business, you want to cook, you want to make a, yeah. a great dish. And that's, that's the thing. And one day, one day you're able to make this great dish over and over. And then you start looking at the sous chef and saying, I want to do that. I want to like, you know, manage people. Yeah. And so you become a sous chef and it's hard, right? You know, people suck and you, you have to do this and that. And, but one day you're good at it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you look at the chef and say, I want to do that. I want to create the whole menu. I want to create the whole thing. So you do, so you become a chef and then, and you're terrible at it, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is much harder than I thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's too much responsibility. But eventually, you're a really good chef. You yeah. can do this anywhere. And when that happens, you say, I want to be like to own my own restaurant. So you own your own restaurant. Yeah. And that's like getting punched in the face every morning a hundred <laughs> times, right? But eventually, you're pretty good at it. You have a functioning restaurant. It makes money. It's like, okay, I'm a little bored. I wonder if I could do another one of these things. Yep. And then that happens. And, you know, you do that. And then it's like, I wonder if I could do a bunch of them. You know, and then you have... Six, seven, and they're all functioning fine, and you hardly have to be there. And it's like, I wonder how big I can make this thing, right? So that's that's what kind of keeps you, if if you're someone like growth. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, people are motivated by different things. Some people are motivated by money. I'm not particularly. People are motivated by by uh, um, uh, you know ego. I'm Mm. not particularly. Some people are motivated by just obsession with like the puzzle, and I am that figuring it out. Yeah, figuring curiosity. I am. I'm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm 
what's next. Yeah, I'm kind of hyper competitive in a slightly unpleasant way, and and that's with the ego coming in though, maybe a little. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's it's me against me though. I'm I'm fascinated by ego right now because I'm I'm um, listening to actually on the way down here. Ego is the enemy. Maybe uh, ego is the wrong word, right? Like so. so well, ego, no, I think it is the right word. Ego in a public sphere, like like what do other people think versus yeah. ego, like I can beat this thing. Yeah. And and I guess I have a I have a very healthy ego when it comes to I can beat this thing. Yeah. I mean, ego is, I mean, we all have an ego. Yeah. We all have some element of an ego, but our ego can be like toxic depending on what our, yeah. our yeah. perception of ourselves are. Right. Absolutely. Um, but at that, they, they can also be healthy too. If you have a, a healthy well, ego, well, mine right? is just, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a sous chef when I'm 27. I'm going to be a chef when I'm 30. I'm going to yeah. take this thing, this thing, I'm going to have five units. No, I'm going to have 20 units. It's going to be this big. So yeah, that's, that's all you can call that ego, I guess. So yeah. as you're evolving as this restaurant tour, going from sous chef to executive chef uh-huh. to restaurant tour uh-huh. to multi unit operator to, you know, corporate, how was your skill? Like you were saying you're so, evolving. So, you're right, so there's, there were two things I did that were smart, mm. right? In in retrospect, I'm not giving myself credit for doing it because they were smart. Uh, one was I joined a group called Vistage. Okay. Right. Which is a CEO's group. And I, okay. and I joined it. Mastermind in the sort. Yeah. It, 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 you meet, once a month with a group of other CEOs, uh, and they all come from different industries, right? And you have, it's an all day session and you have speakers and they talk, and what you learn is that all CEO, you know, the CEO of the paint company and the CEO of the insurance company and the CEO of the bank. And they, we all have the exact same problems because mm-hmm. CEO problems are CEO problems. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's leadership. And then you have one meeting one-on-one with a really, I had a terrific facilitator mentor. He, he was great. So, so I learned a ton from that. Uh, that was really, really valuable. And that was from about 06 to 10, right? I, that started when we had oh, maybe 10 million in sales yeah. and ended when we, when we sold to private equity. So that was a big, that was a, a, a really formative. And then the second thing I did was in 06, 07, I decided, I think we had five restaurants and I looked around one day and I said, I'm doing a really crappy job of this. Like in addition, I'm doing this and this and this and I'm trying to open new restaurants and I'm supposed to be running these things and they're running really badly. You know, just service sucks and food's uneven. Yeah. I have people working for me that I should never have here. And, and I, I, I just, I just suck at this right now. Um, and you know, the only answers were either just dial back, stop doing all your other stuff and, and get in there or find somebody else who's better than me at it. And I put in an ad and that went nowhere for a long time. We tried, we tried hiring from within no, no great results there. So um, you're hiring for a CEO? Is that COO. What COO. Gotcha. COO, yeah. And, um, and then somebody answered an ad, and I was like, holy shit, this guy's good. And he's done what I'm looking for at an even bigger scale, so he can teach me stuff. And, and uh, you know, I think I was offering $75,000 a year for it, and he wanted 125000 plus a piece of the business. And I said, okay. Why is that what? worth it? Um, because you can't move forward without, I mean, yeah. you know, it's 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 worth it if you want to keep going. It's yeah. not worth it if you're fine where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't do everything. You have to multiply yourself. Well, not only you have to multiply yourself, but, but I didn't even think I was that good. Right. I wanted, I wanted somebody better. Mm. What right? were you good at? What, what by, by shedding this responsibility mm-hmm. of the C the, of the operations role. Yep. So you could focus more on the CEO role, which right. is more visionary, more <laughs> culture, more who we are, Just... why we are not so much what we are. You know, I, I, it was funny. I had a, uh, I have a real estate broker, and she used to call me the metronome. That, that was my job. 
Okay. Where are where are we on this? Where are we on this? Aren't we supposed to be done with this now? Constant gentle pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Constant gentle pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was that's that's the job. Uh, But the guy I hired was phenomenal, and the way I know he was phenomenal was was I mean, talking about Jeff right now? No, I'm talking about Scott Scott Lawton. Gotcha. And uh, the reason (laughs) the reason I know he's phenomenal is within a week or two weeks, my phone just stopped ringing, completely Mm. stopped ringing. I was like, and I I would say, hey, you know. I'd see some general manager. What's going on with the you know the broken refrigerator? Oh, I talked to Scott about it. It's good. It's like I mean, I, I literally had free time. Yeah, I think this is we could hover here just for a little bit, and I do want to talk about about what you got going on now. Um, we got about twenty five minutes left okay. together. Uh, how do you? shed and delegate because that must be hard for a lot of people who are at that point of scale even on a more micro level from going from like one to two locations now you're at three or four locations and you're really starting to hire and build building things around you how did you deal with that that letting go was it easy because you just it was easy okay (laughs) what advice do you have for somebody so they know who the, the new chain of command is they know who the new right person to report to is and all that stuff well i mean I'm trying to remember the exact order it is. I had it up over my desk for a while. It said, uh, organize, supervise, delegate, check. Mm. Right? So that's that's the order. Organize, supervise, delegate, delegate check. check. Yeah. Yeah. And people like to do it without the check part. Right? Because you've delegated something doesn't mean you're done with it. It means yeah. somebody else yeah. is doing 95% of it. You're still in charge of 5%, the 5% that nobody else can do, and you're still in charge of making sure it got done. Got it. Like handing it off to somebody is not the same thing as delegating. Delegating mm-hmm. is, delegating is you know instead of doing one hundred percent of a job, you do five percent of a job, which means you can now do twenty jobs. Yeah, then the five percent you're doing is proofreading and signing. Right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> no. checking. Yeah, checking. checking. And, and in order to check, you need a system to check. Right. Yeah. So we were absolutely insane, manic about we have cameras but when you know when it was still hard to get cameras and they were expensive and nobody was doing it, we had cameras in every restaurant in every corner and we had secret shops constantly and our so the, yeah sorry. our managers hated it. I, I, I we'd have managers come to us and they would say i've never had this is what i'm really interested in the you said that you have systems for checking so yeah. cameras secret shoppers what are the comment other cards comment cards uh, what else you know now of course the, everybody does it for you yelp does it for you everybody but, yeah. but i would say ovation is probably the new comment yeah. card i don't know yeah. if you're familiar with ovation but it's no but i don't feedback. like i don't like technology in no? general so yeah. so our comment cards were cards yeah you stuck them in the check presenter uh and we still have them um because it just depends on the restaurant right i mean we're not quick service we yeah. want we want you to feel a little old time we still have a book with a pencil in the front and so, yeah um but you know, if you're not continually sniffing your armpits, you can't you can't do this job, right? I mean, that that was, and again, that's maybe getting to your question about the mentality. Um, and and when I trained managers, I used to tell them, "There's something wrong here." Like, I, I would walk around the dining room, and I would say, "Okay, I just went through the dining room. There's three big problems. Go find them." Mm. And I would go stand at the front door. And wait till the manager came back and he would say, yeah, well, there's this and there's this and there's this. And I'd say, great. I said, I actually didn't find any problems. I just want, <laughs> I just want you to understand that there's always three, you know, yeah, there's at least three problems. There's always problems. Yeah. So why are you standing at the front door? Yeah. yeah. Get out there. I mean, because that's my belief is there are always problems. You're just trying to solve as many as you can. And I think it's a good thing to just accept yeah. That there's always three problems. There's always three problems. Because you'll drive yourself crazy if, you, yeah. if you're like, why is it never perfect? No, because it's never going to be perfect. Restaurants are like, yeah, yeah. yeah, running a restaurant is like doing laundry. It's not, if you do it, 
it doesn't mean you don't have to do it again yeah. tomorrow. You have to do it again tomorrow. You have to. You fixed all your problems tonight. Everybody's happy. Great. Tomorrow morning, start all over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so all your employees love you right now. Fantastic. Tomorrow, three of them will hate you. Get used to it. So in 2015, it seems like you kind of did the same thing you did with their CEO, where you're saying, I need to remove myself. I need to relinquish myself from these responsibilities. Find somebody who's doing it better than I can. Yeah. Uh, in, in 2015, you replaced yourself as CEO. I didn't quite replace myself. I, I didn't replace myself till 17. Okay. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff came in in 15 as president, right? And Got it was it. a okay. trial thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was very good. I do minimal research. I don't That's okay. No, no, no. We, yeah. I, I hired somebody who, I mean, it, you can't. I mean, we were, it's a moving target, right? Yeah. We were well over 2,000 employees at the time. You don't just hire somebody and in a week say, here's the new CEO. I mean, yeah. He, he had to room. meet everybody. He had to like the company. The company had to like him. He had to learn what it was that I did all day long. It's like a probation period almost. In not the probation. Sense. It's just learning. It's just yeah. training. But, but two years to bring somebody in and then hand them the keys is not that long a time. So at this point in 2015, 2014, are you, thinking, are you starting to think, I want it? Are you thinking exit strategy now? Are you thinking I need to remove myself, put layers between myself and the business? So I was if thinking I do in terms sell? of five years. And okay. I actually was thinking I'll bring somebody in. It'll take two years and they won't work out. And then I have to bring somebody else okay. in. Okay. But it did work out. It did. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So it was a little earlier than I thought it would be. But, but you know, if you're, if you're, I mean, I think if you're a responsible CEO of a large company yeah. and you want to replace yourself, you need to think in five-year terms. Yeah. You got to be ahead of the ship yeah, yeah. for sure. Especially gonna be, the bigger you get, the the yeah. further out you need to be because that turn takes a lot yeah. slower. You know, exactly a lot a lot longer. Uh, so, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the 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 sell with Del Frisco because I don't think everyone that's listening to this is Del. Am I saying that correct? Del, Del Frisco. Yeah, Del Frisco. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was in 2018. Um, I don't think the people, many of the people listening to this, the majority of my listeners aren't at that level of 30 right. unit operators. Who are well, you could talk to, about, we could talk about the first private equity event, which I think many of them are probably closer to, right? Like, which is, yeah. yeah. Well, I also want to make sure we have the speed round. It's 1140 oh, okay. right now. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's, your, it's your interview. Your time. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I want to make sure I respect your time too. We do have the speed round, but I do want to give it time just, you know, maybe 10 minutes to kind of just address what your life is today, how you've evolved. I know you're working with a bunch of, I mean, you have at least three titles that I found uh, as of right now. I'm on four restaurant boards. I'm on, <laughs> yeah. I'm on the board of Hickory, so, Hickory Tavern in the Southeast. I'm on both the Barcelona and the Bartaco boards, which are now independent companies. And I'm on the board of Upward Projects, which is a company based in Arizona that has a, a brand called Postino. So who is Andy today? Oh, I, I'm, I'm semi-retired and, and ADD. That's all. That's all. Yeah, I, I I have a zillion projects. I'm on the board of a, uh, a restaurant tech company, which is really interesting. To Wisely. Me. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a social media marketing. No, company? it's a uh, it's a, a front door manager. Oh. Um, and they they actually collect information from a zillion different places, from putting you on the wait list to reservations to to uh, you know to Yelp reviews to and what they do is um they're they're not a company that like uses it and markets it. It belongs to the restaurants, but they, they have uh, a way for the restaurant to take all these various things and know that Eric comes in, you know, twice a week. Uh, he used to come in three times a week, but now he comes in twice and, Not you know, to he, a certain segmented list typically has you, margaritas yeah. on Tuesdays, but, but, you know, recently he's, you know, drinking water. So maybe, we, you know, don't offer him a drink. That, yeah. Kind of, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so, 
what are you doing with um the, the name of the business is escaping me? Hold on, sorry. Some okay. Tastemakers Acquisition Group. Tastemakers what? is a SPAC. Uh and it was something I was sort of talking to last year, um, to look at some of the, the restaurant companies that have come through COVID and are sort of really re energized and doing brand new things and, and uh maybe take one of them public. So I I thought it was interesting because I've never done anything in the public markets. I'm sort of a, a private you know, private equity and, and privately owned business guy. And so it was a learning experience. So I'm, I'm in the middle of it right now. And since it's public markets, I really can't tell you a whole hell of a lot yeah. about it. But, but I guess what I'm curious about people who are listening to this, who might be at that two or three locations mm-hmm. and they're thinking to themselves, we got something special. Yep. We can't push this thing over the edge on our own. We needed help. Yep. Maybe we can't give up some equity in the business. And this is actually a really interesting conversation. I just had um, Andrew, uh, Tony Smith, Andrew Smith, from, um, of course, his name is uh, the name of the company, Savory uh, Group. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. From Savory Group, yeah. and they just invested in Via 313, yep. which is a really great brand out of Austin, Texas. Yep. We did a whole episode around private equity. Oh, good, okay. If people are listening to this and they're, and they're at that point right now, mm-hmm. they're thinking maybe private equity is, maybe we give up some percentage of our business to get access to this team who can really help us scale this thing. Because right. the, the, the Two or three units is probably too small. Okay. Equity. I mean, I, I, you know, there's three, there's three sources of money. Um, there's, there's what's affectionately called the three F's friends, families, and fools. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is probably how you're going to raise money if you have one or two restaurants. I mean, and, and, and it makes sense to raise money from them, pe- those people, because they write you a check with the expectation of losing it. Yeah. They're and investing if, in you and your dream. Not if you don't know what you're doing, then, then you should count on losing it and, mm-hmm. and, and raise money from people for whom that's okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, your second level is, is what are called angels. Yeah. And those are, you know, people who lend money and know what they're doing, uh, but it's their money. Yeah. So they expect sometimes to lose it, uh, but they also have some expertise, hopefully, that can mm-hmm. help you. Um, so it's a, a mix of, of getting some strategic advice and also, uh, um, you know, people who write checks to restaurants all the time are, are a good source. And then your last one is institutional money. And the big difference between institutional money and other kinds of money is it's not their money, right? That That's the big difference. When, when you say their money, it's not the institute's money. It's not the person who's writing you the check's money. Okay. So right? they're going out collecting money. Yeah. And they, then raise, they raise a fund. It, it could be venture. It could be family office. could be any, any number of, you know, private equity, any number of things. But basically they've gotten money from other people, which they're in charge of investing, right? Got it. And because it's not their money, they're much squirrelier about losing it, mm. right? I, I, it's much easier to lose your own money than to lose somebody else's money. Yeah. And so the the protections and the the restraints that an institutional investor will put on you are very different. They're they're going to be much more onerous than somebody who's just giving you their own money. Okay. Um. And and as a result, you need to be ready for these people. You need clean books. You you know if you're not audited, that's okay. But you better have a good accountant who's. That's my next question. Yeah. Is if what are you looking for? What are the, the what are, what's the magic sauce? You're looking for obviously that they have their numbers together. Oh, you mean for private equity? Yeah. Um. You know. It varies all over the map because there's a lot of different kinds of private equity companies out there. But but the rule of thumb that I like to tell people is, look, you know, private equity companies don't actually care whether you make bed springs or tacos or, you know, flea killer. It, it's They have a dollar. They want to turn the dollar into $3 in the course of, you know, four or five years. That's what they want. If you can show them, look, here's what we do. If you give us a dollar, we'll turn it into three. Yeah. Here's our projection. Here's our pro forma. Exactly. This is where we're going. Exactly. Yeah. But, but you know, it, it's 
again, it's other people's money. You can't just say, I had this brilliant idea. Let me show you how it turns a dollar into three. That, that's not of interest to them. You have to show that you've done it. It's replicable. The only thing standing in your way maybe is, is you know, cash right now and a little bit of expertise. But in general, you've got your act together. You've yeah. done this a few times. You've done it in different places. Uh, they're looking for trends and that that, yeah. that, that trend is continuing. They're looking, the, they're looking for a company that, that knows what they're doing, has the kind of management and staff that can grow quickly yeah. and is willing to do it over and over and over again. That's what they're looking for. Interesting. Yeah. Anything we have not discussed up to this point oh, that you're hoping to, that you think that you could speak to that would be a special little nugget of knowledge that okay, I, can I can do this for 40 th- years. I can, I can do this. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff, but that's okay. Uh, we, we only have, uh, we got the 15 time we minutes have. left. So one question I ask all my guests before we go to the speed round is okay. the mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. Mm-hmm. Who are you today? Who's the Andy today versus the Andy back in Ooh. 1996? How have you transformed? That's an interesting question. Um, I think in 96, I was much more, you know, fearful of business in general. Like if I have to do these things exactly the way they're supposed to be done and then you come out the other side and you make money and, uh, and, and I think the Andy now is, is no, there's a certain amount of just, it's not do what you want to do and do what you love to do. That that's, I think that's kind of bullshit, but, but it's, it's do something that, people want as well as you possibly can do it. That's really, that's, that's more the secret. And, and I think, I think I underplayed, I I think I thought you could cut corners at the beginning that, that, you know, let's just, let's just get it done, get it done quickly. It'll be a little messy. But, but the real answer is that private equity people want people who are really good and really care. They do, you know, they're not, they're not looking for sloppy stuff. And the most important thing is, all forms of business, you know, are tough. They're tough and require a lot of time away from home and require a lot of... And, and I don't know how to parse this. It's not, again, it's not about doing what you love. What you love may be knitting, right? And nobody cares and you're not going to make a lot of money knitting. But whatever it is that you've decided to do, yeah, do it really, really well. You have to look at yourself in the mirror every day. If you can't look at yourself in the mirror and know that whatever it is... You're doing it as well as you possibly can. It's a very, very tough way to live. And, and I think Andy in 90, 1996 didn't understand that as well. as, And that's, that's what I would say has really changed. It's like everything I'm proud of at 60 was because I just said, you know what, that's not good enough and busted my ass. Yeah, just do the work. Put just the energy the into the just work. Just do the yeah. work. Just do the work, yeah. yeah. I love it. I love this conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's 
pretty great. Now, I've told you what's new with Play IQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with Play IQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies. With bill pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill, and this is all happening online, so no more paper checks. Play IQ Bill Pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check, ACH, or Play IQ card. Also, with Play IQ Bill Pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right, no more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about Play IQ Insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare spend by item, vendor, time, period, and location. Man, I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, you get an alert. And then lastly, there's Play IQ custom approval workflows. Only see the invoices you need to, no more duplications of efforts, and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, save 25% off implementation. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Focus. I knew that was going to be the answer. What is your biggest weakness? There's so many. (laughs) Uh, My biggest weakness is, I don't know, I could just be kind of a didactic pain in the ass. How do you overcome that? Uh, Try and remember that. People don't care. <laughs> what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? They have to, they have to believe in the mission, you know, way beyond, you know, the immediate job. Yeah. This, it has to be something they care deeply about. What's your biggest challenge today? And this is usually as somebody answering as a restaurant tour. You've kind of I was going to say, yeah, taking your restaurant tour hat off. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the restaurant challenge because I'm still I'm still on all these boards is, yeah. is staffing. 
Yeah. And no how question. are they overcoming it? Um, there's no good way. We're in a, we're in a sea change right now. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone's just riding it out as best they can yeah. and, and there will be an answer. I just don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be a way to act a core value. You know, look in the mirror and say, you know, is this who I am? Every time you do something, look in the mirror and say, is this really who I am? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, on the way here, listening to yeah. ego is the enemy. Uh, they say success is just knowing that you have a, like a clear conscience. Stress clear conscious is a success. One of the, one of the sayings I live by is stress is the gap between what you're doing and what you should be doing. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Um, just let that sink in if you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? So something that's a way to go above and beyond what's expected. I, I, I always tell managers, waiters, et cetera, that, that when they go to a table and talk to a table, I don't want them to leave knowing something about the guest. I want them to leave the guest knowing something about them deeply mm, personal. Make it personal. No, but, but, but it's the other way around. Make, they want the guest to know something about you. Yeah. So, so the you next share time. something personal. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a reason to, yeah. to connect with you. For, exactly. Or, yeah. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Wow. Uh, I, you know what? I've never had anything better than, than Carnegie, Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. And that's, that's when it comes to being a manager, an owner, a manager, how to, mm-hmm. how to deal with people. Yeah. Great book. Also on audio, if you head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable, you can get that one on us. If you're not already an audible member and I don't know about you, do you listen to audiobooks? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a game changer. If you're not yeah. listening, to, especially in the restaurant industry, we don't have time, a lot of time to sit down yeah. and read. Yeah. Get audiobooks. It's, it will yeah. change your life. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Um, well, I'll tell you what they don't do well enough. They do not know how to seat a room. It drives me absolutely crazy to go to places where, where open table says, you know, we have nothing available except 5.30 and 8.30 and you walk in at 6.30 and there's no table, you know, there's nothing but empty tables. It's like, what What are you people thinking? You're throwing money out the window and they put typically the dumbest person in the on the entire staff is the person at the front door in charge of telling you, hey, sorry, no, we have, no, yeah. we have nothing Managing available. your most valuable like, asset. Really? Seriously? A, a seat, right? Yeah. yeah. This, I, I feel that. Uh, name one service you've hired or outsourced, or maybe uh, some of the companies you're working with now, the restaurants you're working with now, what are you advising that they adopt? Or if, there's, if there is, I know you're not a technology guy, but is mm-hmm. there anything up there like that? Uh, I mean, not necessarily technology. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a huge believer in secret shopping. Okay. Huge believer. Is there a company that... We use a company called Confidential Consumer, but, but okay. there's a number of big ones, but I, I do not think you can do it enough. Beautiful. And this next question is a technology question. Same question. One technology you've adopted within your restaurants that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, uh, profitability, anything along those lines. Uh, yeah, I mean, wisely. <laughs> the reason I'm on their board is because I love I love the product. I, th- I think they're marketing automation, so they'll they will they'll know everything about you, and they'll put a you know you just say okay, I want to send you know a quick advertisement to everybody who who drinks margaritas more than once between the age of 20 and 25 and you know it, so at its core it's email marketing and data no at its core it's data okay and one of the things you can do with it is marketing okay so you pull that data to segment and communicate you can't it will pull it for you you don't have to do the work you okay. can just say this is you know i just i just want to reach these people 
and mm. Laurie knows who they are. But it also allows you at the front door when you come in to say, Eric, man, we haven't seen you since, you know. I would love to June. learn more if you want to. And I don't know if you know anybody over there. No, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, what is, actually, this is the last question. It's okay. a doozy. Get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Okay. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Good. Okay. It's a loaded one. Uh, it is a loaded one. It's a really hard one, too. Uh, kindness is more important than brilliance. One. Uh, you know, what, you, what, you, what you tolerate becomes your standard. Two. Uh, this is, this always is, smell your own armpit. It's too hard. Yeah, always smell your own armpit. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, this is I'll too take hard. It. <laughs> too hard. I have loved this conversation, Andy. Thank you so much. We wrap yeah. up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you. Thank you okay. very much, Kyle and Sarah, for calling you out. Who do you respect and admire in this industry? And if there were a guest on the show, you'd be absolutely tuning in. Lauren Bailey. Lauren, you will have a great interview. Look out, Lauren. I'm coming after you. Where is she based? Uh, Arizona. I'm coming to Arizona, Lauren. Look out. I'd love to connect. And uh, how can we connect with you if maybe we're interested in private equity or wisely or anything else? What's the best Shoot me an email. I, I'm, I'm, I'm easy. I have no assistant. I answer everything. What's your email? Andy at Barteca.com. It's an old one, but it still works. Beautiful. Andy, thank you, you so bet. much. This has been a, a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thanks. We'll cut it there. Thanks, Eric. It was fun. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Andy Forsheimer, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. And man, how inspiring was that story? Such a great time chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you guys found value in today's episode and you wish you could connect with Andy and get some advice from Andy, get some peer mentoring from Andy, well, guess what? You can because on Monday, September 27th, a week from when this episode goes live, Andy's going to be available live in Restaurant Unstoppable Network for an hour to connect with you, my listeners, to answer your questions, to reflect on today's episode, and to get some peer mentorship. Come with your questions. Get, I mean, this is your your chance to connect with people you normally wouldn't be able to connect with and to drop your, your questions on them and to get that advice from the best in the industry. So what are you waiting for? Come hang out in the network and it will be worth your time and your money. And uh, we have some other events happening in the network this week. We have David Scott Peters. You guys all know David. Multiple re- Pete guest on the show. He's doing a workshop Wednesday, September 22nd at 9 a.m. We're going deep into the world of restaurant budgeting. So that's a huge conversation. You want to be a part of that one. I would not miss it. Also, we have Chris Dimmick from the Idea Collective. Chris's episode went live a couple weeks ago. Uh, he is now joining us in the network uh, to do, again, peer mentoring. This is your opportunity to connect with my guests, uh, to also connect with other restaurant tours from around the nation. We get together regularly. We support each other. We we brainstorm. It's like a master mind 
Like it's like a master mastermind group. I don't know how to explain it, but it's awesome. We're having a blast. Also, at the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that we have the Profit First Money Management course. Uh, you do want to check that out if uh, you don't have a money management system. You need to know where all of your money is going, and you need systems and processes to manage your money. If you don't have this, I highly recommend the Profit First Money Management System. In just one year of using the system, I was able to pay off my car uh, over fourteen thousand dollar one time payment. To pay off my car. So head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 829. I'll link to the, the network and uh, to the course, the proper first course. And I cannot wait to meet you over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. All right, guys, until next time, peace out.